dead or from another plane of existence would do well to cover their ears right about now. Cinema Psyops. My personal view is that it's nauseating, disgusting, degrading, ghastly, steamy, cruelly and wildistic and generally nauseating. They are unbelievably nauseating. They are the antithesis of humankind. I regard them as disgusting, nasty, horrible, without any kind of merit. I just do not believe that any allegedly cultural activity which strikes at the roots of culture is to be applauded. They represent nothing to my mind enduring, decent or worthwhile. I just do not believe that they contribute anything worthwhile to inflict themselves upon society at large. I would like to see somebody Psyops with Hort and Matt. Hello and welcome to Cinema Psyops. I am not joined in the studio with Matt. More importantly, I am joined live via the Interocitor this week with the venerable co-host of the Hello, This is the Doom Show, Brad. How's it going, Brad? Very well, sir. Thank you for having me. This late summer evening, really, really excited to join you tonight to talk about another Hammer film. Yeah, and it's very fitting. We both uh, watched the movie during the epoxy clips, or just shortly after it. Yes, we did. <laughs> yes, we did. Yeah, I was definitely in the mood whenever the sun was being blotted out. I wasn't underneath the full eclipse where I was at. I just watched it from my backyard, but it was actually pretty cool. I mean, it was pretty cool. We, we had 100, 100% totality uh, for a, uh, about a minute or so, and uh, I had never seen one before, and it was a very odd, surreal feeling. Yeah, I can only imagine, because we got pretty close to it. I mean, it was like 98, 99, I think, where we were at. Like, it was pretty much all covered, except for a small ring just to one side of the sun was still peeking out, but the other side mm-hmm. was covered. We didn't get the the perfection, the 100% that everybody gets to see, you know, in the in the perfect line. We were just off of that. And uh, my my wife and I were both just really digging it. Um, oh, yeah. It kind of puts things into perspective, like, you know, the whole entire universe, all this stuff that we have absolutely no control over. And, mm-hmm. you know, you, you just kind of stop worrying about your day to day for like, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes to an hour, depending upon how long it lasted from where you were at. Mm-hmm. I think for one moment, everybody on Earth that was in that path and could see it all was just thinking about nothing else. And it just felt like everybody was at peace for like an hour, maybe two. And it was kind of awesome. Yes. Yes, I've seen a lot of stuff on Facebook about how nobody worried really about anything for that that period of time, which is just... It's just a, it was a great thing. And if you were living during Dracula has risen from the grave around these time frames, you probably would have been horrified to see something like that happen. And think that <laughs> it was the end of the world. It's and amazing. Probably so. It's amazing how we've changed over the years, is it not? <laughs> it, it really is. No. And I saw a clip just uh, on ABC News where they showed a clip from February 26, 1979, which is less than a month before I was born. And at the end of the clip, the newscaster said, uh, join ABC News for coverage 
of the next eclipse, August 21st, 2017. Yeah, they knew even back then. Science is amazing, dude. It really is. <laughs> amazing. Yeah, now this is going to be a little bit delayed when it comes out, like most of the little bonus special episodes that you and I do. Okay. Um, so I'm not sure that people are going to really care about the eclipse back then, but I don't really care because it's, you know, it's it's on the horizon and I just want to give everybody the flavor of when we're watching Dracula Has Risen from the Grave to talk about it. And Yes, it's really cool. This is the second in our series. We first did Twins of Evil and both of these were just uh, arbitrarily picked off the top of your head as in, hey, that's a really good movie. We should do that one. And it yeah. turned and it turns out we'll be continuing our series of Brad and Court philosophically debate religious beliefs in film. Uh, <laughs> well, I've got to tell you, Court, I don't think that I will be as, as stringent as I would was in the other one. I feel like that you and I had a really, really good conversation, probably the most serious conversation I've had on a podcast. Um, I feel like that you and I really got to the crux of it. I really enjoyed it, and I've had a lot of people tell me they listened and enjoyed our conversation and i always tell them i'm like it's court man oh i don't know i think you're you're selling yourself far too short in this case man uh, you you well, brought that to me you made the choice you were kind of concerned that maybe you know some of the content of the film would be an issue for us to talk about and i was like we're adults let's let's get through this you know we we can have differing beliefs there's no big deal yeah i tell you what court uh you and i have more in common i think than what we don't and the world would be a very vanilla place if we all thought the same thing anyway. Oh, absolutely. How boring would life be? It would totally be boring. But I know that you love Hammer films and horror films, and I do too. And uh, you've always just been so kind and gracious to me, and I've always really appreciated it. Oh, you're just too sweet. Oh. <laughs> all right. Well, instead of just kind of beating around the bush to talk about the film, why don't we take a little break here? We'll play a promo for another podcast. We'll have a little bit of music, and when we come back, we will do Dracula Has Risen from the Graves trailer. Hello, this is the Doom Show. Keep on keeping on and keep on trucking, America. We don't listen to our feedback because we don't get any. <laughs> the truth hurts. I just alienated the two people that give us constant feedback. Sorry, guys. That's gotta go. <laughs> That's gotta go in there. So on the show, uh, we talk about giallo movies and slasher movies and cult movies. Sometimes we even talk about Cameron Mitchell and his movies. I am Richard. Who are you? I'm Brad, the guy that's not Richard, or Jeffrey, or Simon. That's right. We have four people, and we always talk at once, except to each other. Jeffrey lives up north. Simon lives across the world. Richard lives in Penis, Alabama. Hello, This is the Doom Show is a proud member of the Legion Podcast Network. Check out the other shows on legionpodcast.com. You can check out more Hello, This is the Doom Show at hellodoomshow.podomatic.com or at doommoviethon.com. Check for our Amazon exclusive Hello, This is the Doom Show cookbook. Do you like hot dogs? <laughs> we got them. Do you like mac and cheese? We got it. Do you like cheddar? We have it. Actually, we don't. No, no cheddar. Just Colby. Colby Jack. Hello, this is the Doom Show. We never gave up on you because you never gave up on us. Wow. So from the grave No, I ain't 
So trying to recapture some of the glory of what we had on our last episode when we worked together, I'm also playing some more Coffin Shakers this time around. They actually wrote a song called Dracula Has Risen From The Grave. No way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I love that's, about the Coffin Shakers. That's awesome. Yeah. Instead of playing a song about Dracula Has Risen From The Grave, let's jump right to that trailer. No coffin could ever hold him. No door could ever bar his way. He is back from the dead. Count Dracula is alive. Dracula has risen from the grave. Dracula, the most fearsome name in any language. The most feared being ever to haunt the living. There is a girl. Maria. Bring her to me. During the hours of darkness. He must never be left alone. Bring her to me! Christopher Lee, Rupert Davis, Veronica Carlson, Hammer's new star discovery, Dracula's most beautiful victim. Dracula has risen from the grave. To resist him is useless. To rise against him is futile. To know him is eternal damnation. Dracula has risen from the grave. Wow, I love trailer guy voice. <laughs> Telling you, that was a good trailer. Yeah, that's the original from 1968. I, I tweaked it a little bit. I removed some of the just screaming and sound effects stuff when you don't have the visuals and kind of trimmed down the music bits where they had some of the visuals and just went straight really? for the yeah, just went straight for the trailer guy voice. That's kind of oh. it, it makes it a, play a little bit better for the audio if you can get those original trailers where the guy kind of narrates it a little bit or mm-hmm. you know, or whoever when you're doing the audio podcast format. So many of the modern trailers that are all about the visuals and sound effects, it's like you can play that audio, but it's all just screaming and you know yeah the, the sounds of like a boot hitting wet mud <laughs> for, <laughs> for blood splatter and stuff it's just not much of anything there so now as we mentioned before this is kind of a series that we were doing and i've kind of taken my notes in the same way that i did before instead of going straight for blow by blow play by play of everything that's happened i just kind of have notes where i'll ask you questions or i'll make statements and then just kind of try and get an open forum discussion back and forth and i think that works better for just the way that you and i talk about films anyway excellent and if uh if time permits and the host permits i have a a question time for you oh there's always time for question time Heck yeah. Now, the first thing that I noticed right off the bat for the film for myself, I mean, right from the opening, the set design and cinematography is some of the absolute finest in Hammer's history. Agreed particularly in the modern style of the church, right as the film opens, Mm -hmm. um, it's just breathtaking. You you don't really see this level of production value in some of the other Hammer films. I don't know where they got all the money for this one compared to some of the other ones, but it's all on screen. Yeah. Well, they were in a new studio than where they had filmed previous Dracula films, and I don't know if that had anything to do with it or not. They were in uh, at Pinewood instead of Bray. Is this the first one that they did in Pinewood? Because they did a lot of films in Pinewood after this, did they not? I believe they did, yes, sir. Uh, I know that Dracula and Dracula Prince of Darkness were both filmed at Bray, and this one is the first 
Dracula film that they filmed at Pinewood Studios. That absolutely makes sense. Now, Dracula Prince of Darkness had some pretty impressive set design as well, but it still had that very stagey feel to it. It felt like a stage play the way that they had the castle laid out and everything. But yes, this particular film feels like an actual village. And I've recognized some parts of the village where it got reused. Mm -hmm. We even have two different locations where we move to a, a larger village or almost like a city later on in the film. And the production value when they get to there, it just increases exponentially and it's just oh gorgeous yeah i mean just for the production value and the set design alone i mean if you just ignore everything else about the film and you can't get into anything else if you like that kind of stuff this film will grab you and just keep your attention just based on that am i wrong no you're not wrong absolutely and the thing about hammer is that these men and women were craftsmen they knew how to do their job and they did it well in fact the the cinematographer in this arthur grant he did a lot of uh, hammer films including Paranoiac, The Damned, Quatermass in the Pit, Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, and for Roger Corman, he did The Tomb of Ligeia. Oh, and that's another wonderfully shot film as well. Wonderful, yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. Excellent, excellent pedigree right there for a cinematographer. Absolutely. He died within four years of of completing this film. Oh, now you just brought me down and made me feel sad. (laughs) Sorry, man, but it's beautifully shot. Yeah, he had quite the eye. He really did. The compositions alone are just incredible the way that it's set up. We did have kind of a discussion on the last podcast about the Kensington gore and about the blood that Hammer used and how it was essentially like a stage blood and had that very kind of red crayon or almost red tempera paint look more so than blood. But... I noticed even from the opening scene, there's a couple of shots where they had the color timing just right. And that blood actually looks like blood in a couple of the shots. There's a few that it's still kind of tempera paint like, but Mm -hmm. particularly the blood drips that are happening on the priest's hands when he's just underneath the bell. And then he goes to look up the stairs. Uh Those couple of blood drips, like right before he grabs the rope and everything. And then right as he grabs the rope, that's when I noticed that when he grabs the rope, it gets more of that tempera look as well. And it just goes to show you that you got to, you know, do the, the test for the color timing for your blood <laughs> otherwise yeah. you're gonna have this and Hammer's not the only ones and the Kensington Gore is not the only victim of this I mean you see it and we mentioned this before so I won't go too deep into it but in a lot of 70s movies they use stage blood which looks like actual blood on stage but with the way that the pastel look that a lot of this kind of film stock from this era had it tends to make the blood look kind of well <laughs> like, like like temper paint or, or melted crayons absolutely and, and it's just the era you know it totally is but I noticed there's a couple of shots where it looked pretty realistic and pretty naturalistic yeah. blood yeah it was it was good now the next statement that i have too is the dead girl falling out of the church bell is mm-hmm. still terrifying to me and it still <laughs> gets me it's still horrific it's a terrific jump scare even when i knew it was coming because i watched this a couple of times like as soon as you mentioned like that we should do this i was like okay i'll watch it now and i'll, I'll kind of get a flavor for it and see what what take i want to do on it or how i want to do the notes and you know if i want to go play by play or not and then it got me then and then when i sat down to do the notes i'm writing my notes and i know it's coming and i'm just waiting for it and it still gets me man it still makes me jump (laughs) oh and i imagine especially for its time it was a a very efficient jump scare especially for its time you know we're still at this point we're still pre-texas chainsaw massacre in the world of horror films and no i think this entire opening scene just really sets the stage so well this was 68 was it not does that sound right Mm -hmm. yes sir 10 years after the first hammer dracula film yeah i didn't look that up i was just kind of going by what i could recall and yeah for 1968 i mean 
you got like probably the only thing that could have a as much of a shocking effect off the top of my head would be Night of the Living Dead when that comes out, and that's not in mm-hmm. full glorious color. That's that's black and white and and has a very sort of documentary and cold feel. Yes, sir. This comes completely out of left field. I mean, this is practically a G-rated movie up to that point, and when mm-hmm. she pops out of there, you're immediately like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's been some confusion. I think that I've I've read some reviews. They ask, you know, if Dracula's dead, how did he kill this girl? But this is I mean, it's a prologue. Right. I think a lot of people didn't realize that this event is what drove the townspeople to come and get him. (laughs) And this is a sequel to which of the Dracula films? Because I remember he does get trapped in water. Dracula Prince of Darkness. Okay. So it's Dracula Prince of Darkness where he gets trapped under the water. So this prologue is taking place during the events of Dracula Prince of Darkness. Yeah. Where he's dropping this woman off at the church. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. And I'm wondering, did he have access to the bell tower because that's not part of the consecrated ground that he could get in there and he decided to desecrate it that way as a sort of like uh, middle finger <laughs> to the church yeah. and the townspeople? Well, Hammer always kind of played fast and loose with the rules on what Dracula could do and what he couldn't do. I think we'll discuss probably later in this a few of the things that were new for this film or at least that I could recall. It's very interesting to think that he could get into the church period. Personally, I think if vampires were real, they could probably go wherever they wanted to as far as that goes. Yeah, I've seen a lot of stuff where vampire lore where they have a thing where it's not necessarily the symbol that has anything. It's the faith behind the symbol. There's a couple of different films that have done it that way. Yeah. Is it because maybe this town's people don't really have a lot of faith they might be going through the motions that Dracula was able to get away with this? I think it's quite possible because as we'll see, their priest is not very strong in his faith at all. No, absolutely not. Actually, that leads us into our first clip where we get the introduction to the Monsignor. Mm-hmm. A year has passed since Dracula, perpetrator of these obscene evils, was destroyed. And I, Ernst Muller, Monsignor of the Holy Catholic Church in the province of Kynenberg, decided it was time I paid a visit to the little village in the valley to see that all was well. Now, when he actually makes the trip to the church and he walks inside, we see the priest that we were talking about where he's performing the mass to no one. Mm-hmm. There's the guy that's helping him. And then we see him just kind of going through the motions and doing the mass with no one there. When they show that church, does it look sufficiently neglected as if no one has shown up there at all? Yeah, I think it does, actually. I think the thing that sells it for me is the cobwebs all the way up the staircase indicate that no one even wants to go near the bell tower anymore. Yeah, the events of the previous year have shaken the townspeople so much. And of course, with any leader of any organization, whether it be where you work or a social group or whatever, you're only as strong as your leader is. If your leader's weak, then then the group is weak. Now, do you think that the priest finding the girl is the event that's shaken his faith and made him be less of the holy man that he should be in the film. Well, I mean, it's pure speculation on my part, but I kind of figure he probably didn't have much to start with because in my thinking, God forbid, if your house were to get robbed, you feel like someone has come in here to my home and disturbed my things. And I don't know about you, but I'd be pissed off. You just kind of wonder where that fire is in him because this is a total desecration of the church. I'm not a Catholic, and I think that these folks are Catholic. They appear to be. I would think that 
maybe there would be a ritual to sanctify the church, and I don't think it goes through that. Yeah, it's almost as if he's the eternal victim, where he just pretty much gives up at the first sign of trouble, and being a priest wasn't his calling. I mean, in this day and age, you would have, like, your eldest son would become the heir, Mm -hmm. um, and would, you know, carry on the family fortunes and the family businesses, and then any subsequent sons, you would always have one of them become a priest or a pastor within your particular faith. That's one of the things that was just kind of that style of life, particularly for lords and ladies and, you know, for the aristocracy, it was always a good thing to have a younger child that could not be in line for a throne or or anything like that to become part Mm -hmm. of the priesthood because it strengthened the family's resolve to have that connection to the faith, particularly in times of trouble, like with your crusades and things, it always was good to have someone in the church to help protect you. Exactly. And if you're not in line for part of the family inheritance, this is something that gives you a lifeline as well, as far as a vocation that you would think would carry through any kind of anomaly or any kind of national disturbance. Churches are sometimes super recession-proof. People, when they have tough times, often look to faith of some sort for comfort. So it would be something that they could know that their child was being taken care of. Yeah, it would almost be a way to make sure that they could weather any storm and any sort of turmoil. Because as you mentioned, the worse things get, the more people usually tend to turn towards their faith if that's their proclivity. Exactly. Just for any kind of a safety blanket or any kind of comfort. Yeah. And did you think he looked kind of like Gallagher? without a mustache. I, can't expect, I expected him to like squash watermelons for Dracula. I was expecting him at any point in time to put on a clown nose and like make his hair orange and spike it out on the sides because he oh looked like a gosh. clown to me. He, he did. <laughs> <laughs> I felt so bad for this actor because he was just the heel for everything. Like he was just so trodden upon for the entirety of the film. Everybody just walks all over him. <laughs> and he's dubbed. Oh, he is? He's overdubbed? Yes, sir, he is. I don't know why. He's a Scottish actor best as I remember from my notes. Um, but no, according to IMDb, he is dubbed. I'm wondering if Warner Brothers had something to do with it because they were concerned that the brogue would not be understandable in, it's possible. in American audiences. And I wonder if the original Hammer version that you could get that would have been released in Europe would probably even have him be dubbed as well. Yeah, it's possible. We're a big believer in subtitles here. If it has subtitles, they're on because it makes it easier to not miss something. We watch a lot of British mysteries and some from Wales, and it's really, really handy when when there's a, a difficult tongue. Of course, you know, when I listen to myself on podcasts, I'm like, who is that yokel? That's to all that's me. <laughs> You know what's really interesting? Uh, my wife and I actually talk to each other in brogues goofing around because she's she's of Irish descent, so she loves to hear the Irish brogue. So like we'll we'll play back and forth with that, or sometimes I'll do a really bad Scottish brogue because I'm not very good at that. But because we talk to each other in accents like that, you know, we can decipher and hear even like Cockney rhyming slang. We can kind of figure out a little bit of what they're saying as well. And it's one of the things that's really nice because we could watch mostly all of the British TV and things where some people would probably have a hard time understanding and we've actually learned a lot of that kind of slang and i'll take the time to pause it and look it up so i'll be like i don't recognize that what's that mean you know <laughs> trying yeah. to in- absorb the culture more and I've, I've tried to do that too with any foreign language that i don't even completely understand like a, a french film or something like that if i'm watching it in the original language and with the subtitles if there's something that they mentioned that i don't understand that might be like a regional slang kind of thing i, I try okay. to look that up too just to kind of understand and get more immersed into the world that i'm I'm being exposed to. Exactly. I tell you what, I often tell Elizabeth this. I said, you know, you'll see like 
actresses come over and they'll say, I learned English from watching your television. And I always tell Elizabeth that's total bullshit because we have watched Italian horror films in G Alley <laughs> for years. I know what pronto means, which does not mean fast. It means hello. <laughs> so I could not learn from just watching television. But no, that's very interesting. You know, you always want to learn things. And I think that's very cool that you would go and look that up because that's just like the way I am. I would look that up too. Yeah, it's it's a natural curiosity for us in particular, for both of us here, being fans of Euro horror and being exposed to a world that we know nothing about being raised in the United States, you automatically mm-hmm. want to learn more about what it is that you're seeing there, you know? And it's carried over to the martial arts films or anything that I've seen from Hong Kong, uh, any kind of Australian film when I got really big into the Ozploitation <laughs> in my late teens, <laughs> you know? Uh-huh, exactly. Man, we have gotten way off track, haven't we? <laughs> That's what outtakes are for, Brad. That's what outtakes are for. <laughs> exactly. No, oh, it's no problem. To bring us back, I'm just going to go right into where the Monsignor arrives. He notices the church is in neglect, just to put Mm -hmm. it mildly. He looks about the place, and being Mm -hmm. a man of faith, as we had discussed earlier, and not having the lack of spine that the parish's current priest has, he knows there's something that must be done about this. And also, I think he has more of a monetary, let's keep the church's power thing going, as he is a Monsignor. He's an Mm -hmm. administrator of the church, so he steps up and he goes looking for the priest, and that actually leads to our next clip. I have just inspected your church. But for this boy here, it was empty. Why Why were you not there saying mass? I was there, Monsignor. I have said mass. You have said mass already? And to an empty church? Yes. Then why was the church empty? Well? I think you know, Monsignor. No, I do not know. I know that your church was once vilely desecrated, but the perpetrator of that ghastly deed was destroyed some 12 months ago. Is that not so? Was he not sent to his doom in the waters of your mountains? And was he not therefore destroyed forever? Is that not so? Then why were you not there in church this morning? It's the shadow, sir. Shadow? The shadow of his castle, sir. It touches the church. In the evenings, it touches it. Whose castle? Count Dracula? Is that who you mean? Why do you not speak his name? Cannot harm you anymore. He is destroyed, is he not? And he is dead. Is he dead or not? Yes, he is dead. Well, but the evil is still there. We can feel it in the shadow, even in the church. There is no evil in the house of God. Landlord, I wish to talk to my priest in private. Now then, perhaps you'd better tell me all about it. It's as they say, Monsignor. The castle is still evil. You can feel it. You can't imagine what it's like. I am not unacquainted with evil. The question is, what are we going to do about it? I don't know. Has anybody been up there since that time? To the castle? Yeah. Have you been? No, never. Then you should have gone. To prove there is nothing to fear. Me? I will come with you. When? Tomorrow, at first light. You will be ready. Otherwise, I shall have to go alone. That would not be easy for me. You know the mountains well. I do not. I will go with you. Thank you, Father. I never doubt it. Dawn will be about six tomorrow. We will meet at half past five. Please, do not be late. Okay, so this Monsignor is not screwing around at all. He is dead no, serious sir. about all of this. When I was a kid and I would see this, which I did not see this one as, as much as I did some of the other ones. But when I was a kid, I surmised that the shadow of the of the castle being able to touch the church was probably how Dracula got in. You know, obviously it is a prologue. It is. But that was how I justified it when I was a kid. And I think that there's also some uh, Hill House, some of the Salem's Lot here in the fact that the castle is evil because of 
of who was there. Oh, I love that idea because I'm a huge, huge fan of Legend of Hell House, and we'll have to do that uh, together sometime because that movie is just beautiful. <laughs> yes, I, w- I would definitely be down for that. <laughs> well, we got the next one booked already. But I, There I, we go. I like that idea because the collection of the evil that men or monsters in Dracula's case do could so infect a place that the place itself becomes this conduit of things that are evil. Just like yeah, the Legend of Hell House. I love that concept. Yeah, or the Marston House in Salem's Lot. You know, it has a very evil inhabitant that dies, but years later, another evil is drawn to it. Yeah, because it's already this open portal to, to hell. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It would be like uh, Dracula wanting to live in the Amityville house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There is a little bit of stuff going on with the Monsignor here where he feels that because he has his faith, he's untouchable. And it mm-hmm. kind of brought up a bit of a philosophical question for me where I kind of wonder where does your strength of faith end and your personal arrogance believing that your faith will conquer <laughs> all again? Because uh-huh. the Monsignor really does raise this question because he his faith is absolute. I do not question that in any way, shape, or form. But he also seems to think that because his faith is absolute, he is so favored by his God that no harm can come to him and no evil will touch him. And mm-hmm. that's a certain point where your faith ends and arrogance begins. Agreed. And I just kind of wondered, like, where, how do you, how do you weigh that? Like, as a person of faith, like, how would you weigh that to where you know maybe I'm making a bad choice because I'm so absolute in my faith? Because he doesn't seem to even consider the possibility that what he's doing could be so monumentally bad. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, I don't think it's exactly the same, but uh, along a similar line in the Bible, King David was a man after God's own heart, but also he sent Uriah the Hittite to be killed more or less so he could have his wife, which was a sin. The thing that you have to do is try to get, in my case, get Brad out of the way. And I think that the the Monsignor here has a little trouble getting the Monsignor out of the way. You know, imagine if this was real life and you were the Monsignor and you show up to a church that is part of your extended flock and this terrible thing, this terrible murder by this evil monster has occurred and the people are afraid to go there. This is definitely a time of superstition. It was in the real world. So I think that he's missing a little bit of uh, understanding what they're going through. You know, if he were to say, guys, I know this terrible terrible thing has happened, but Dracula's gone and I'm going to go up there to the castle and prove it. I think he's missing some compassion on his end, which I think probably comes from arrogance. He should understand that everyone's faith is not as strong as his. Now, I actually tend to think that it doesn't matter what this particular man would believe. I believe that his arrogance is his own and it's kind of, well, no, it is. It's a hundred percent his downfall. No. Mm-hmm. It just so happens that he is a Monsignor within the Catholic Church. I just kind of noticed that he comes in and he's got bravado and he's just got this. I mean, it is. His his faith is 100% absolute that not only that Dracula is dead, that even if Dracula wasn't gone, that whatever he's about to do is going to take care of the situation. Mm Mm-hmm. And it almost feels as though I'm doing a little thought experiment here, but for me, the Monsignor feels almost like this, where he's like, okay, I believe in this God. This God is infallible. My faith is absolute in this God. Therefore, my decisions are infallible. Like, it, seems, it seems to be that's where his logic is going with this. Exactly. And as we find out, his entire endeavor is the basis for the film. Yeah, I mean, you could not have rolled more of a one on your task. 
Uh-uh, no. <laughs> I mean, like, w- what I'm referring to and what we're basically getting at is the next day they get up, they, they go and to make the long trek, he takes the giant cross from the altar of the church with him, mm-hmm. hoisting it on his back, and there's a whole lot of symbolism right there. <laughs> wow, goodness. Like, he is literally carrying his faith up the mountain to defeat yeah, On people. his back. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of subtle, but it whacks it in there with a sledgehammer at the same time. <laughs> it does. It really does. But of course, also audiences in Britain and America, that was that was very prevalent. The 50s were a lot darker. You know, when you think of the 50s, I think a lot of people think of like Happy Days and then Elvis and stuff like that, which is, you know, even though some of that was considered subversive at the time, we now look back on it as being pretty timid, really. Uh, somewhat like when you and I were young men, Marilyn Manson was parents' worst nightmare. And when you go back <laughs> now, it seems kind of tame, somewhat like, you know, like Alice Cooper, even in the 70s. Or the kit or Kiss, you know. The way or that, Kiss, the, exactly. Yeah. Because yeah. Alice Cooper I, raised a stir, but man, people really wanted to destroy Kiss at their time. Yes, they did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, with kids in America, and in, in England in the 60s, when John Lennon said they were bigger than Jesus, in kids' minds, I'm sure there was a case to be made for that. It doesn't diminish Jesus, uh, to, you know, for, for the, him to have said that. But, you know, here in 1968, I think it probably helped them get some stuff through the censors, you know? Particularly in England, because you still had blasphemy laws on this day where you couldn't really have, you know, an evil blasphemous creature you know, exist and get away with some of the stuff that they were doing with Dracula desecrating the church. Something had to come of that. Otherwise the censors would have been on them. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, back then the evildoers had to be dealt with by the end of the film. I also think it's kind of funny too. I noticed we were talking about the symbolism, but as the Monsignor is carrying the heavy load of this giant, what is it gold? Is it a gold cross or do you think it's just a metallic cross that they they may have painted gold? I think it's probably a metallic cross. They painted gold, but this giant heavy, metal cross it's his literally his cross to bear i don't know if you noticed or not but there's a couple of shots where when he turns around to speak to the priest and just kind of check in on him who's having a hard time getting up there without lugging anything Mm -hmm. the the shadow from the cross casts across both of them to where Mm -hmm. you kind of see them in the shadow of the cross and the shots and i thought that was really a visual cue of the burden that the two of them are are almost sort of sharing but the one so much it's not really like the full weight of it he's just kind of there (laughs) you know yeah i mean it also plays into the shadow of the castle on the church you're still you're within the shadow of the cross will that be good in the way that the shadow of the castle is bad on the church? You know, it remains to be seen at this point in the film. Yeah, absolutely. They actually make it all the way up and the Monsignor ends up leaving the priest behind. The priest doesn't even really make it halfway. I think he's part of the way to the pass and he's right there by the brook that's frozen over at the moment. Mm -hmm. And so the Monsignor makes it all the way up to the top of the stairs. And then what I was referring to with the whole faith ending and arrogance beginning is this ritual, which at first I thought was a consecration of the ground, which in and of itself would be a way to really get back at Dracula. But it, yes. but it turns out he says later on that it's an exorcism rite that he performs to try and not necessarily consecrate the ground and, and the and the house, but to actually just expel whatever evil may be there. Now, mm-hmm. this ritual that he performs without even barring the door with the cross, but just this thing that he does here could have been a 
a pretty simple gesture to do for the townspeople, but he goes full bar and decides to make it to where he bars the door with the cross so that nothing evil could technically get in or out of this castle. Yes. <laughs> and then performs this exorcism right. And it's purposely, I think, in the film over the top where a storm starts hitting and, you know, the the earth shakes and there's a lot of stuff where they're trying to accent that this building actually does contain evil because of Dracula. Mm -hmm. But in so doing this, he unleashes the evil because the ground shaking causes the priest to fall. He cracks his head open either on the ice or a rock right by the ice. Just so happens to mm -hmm. be where Dracula is trapped in the ice and the ice yes. cracks from this. The blood from the forehead leaks down into Dracula's mouth and he is revived. Yes, and I think that there are some interesting parallels between this sequence of events and two separate sequence of events in Werewolf Shadow by Paul Nashi, where they resurrect the vampire with the red mist, which is obviously blood in the tomb, and Donetsky plants the Mayans across in the wall in the tomb so that the vampire can't leave. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, I, I totally see that now. Yeah, I yeah. see what you're getting at. So it's the idea was that he was going to trap if there were any vampires or evil spirits left within. I think what the priest was trying to do was trap them within and keep them from being able to escape by exactly. doing the, the exorcism and then and also with the cross. But effectually what he's doing is making it to where Dracula cannot enter his own home and waking yes. him up to show him. So he's, <laughs> he, he's he's effectively pissing on his shoes and uh -huh. then locking him out of his own house and darting off. Yep. <laughs> Which is so ominous just to, to bring it home, man. This is the most ominous scene in any of these films. Like, I can't think of a resurrection scene of Dracula that gives me goosebumps more than this where you're like, oh, dude, you don't know what you just did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they're still trying to keep up some continuity between the films because at the end of Prince of Darkness, that's how they got rid of Dracula is that he fell into this frozen river and was frozen there. You're still keeping up some continuity between the films. Yeah, which is a lot better than the continuity that they bothered trying to do with the Frankenstein movies. They just threw that out. The uh, yes. <laughs> they made the decision there to follow the doctor and not the monster. Well, even still, it's like a reboot almost every one, but we're not talking about the Frankenstein movie. <laughs> no, the, the first few Dracula films do have a through line of where he is left off and then how he gets resurrected almost every time. <laughs> Yeah, and I can't remember about Scars of Dracula, but Taste the Blood of Dracula picks up from the end of this film. So they do carry that for a while. Is Taste the Blood of Dracula where the bats come flying in and drip blood on his mouth? Taste the Blood of Dracula is where someone who we don't see in this film is actually on the scene when they do Dracula at the end of this one. Ah, Scar Scars is the bats. Okay. That's the one. Yeah, Scars, okay, Scars is, is the bats. So I, that's kind of a reboot where they're like, we don't know how he died, but here he's been laying in here and they resurrect him. <laughs> exactly. And then there's continuity between AD 1972 and the satanic rites of Dracula. I'm trying to remember like one of the ways he gets dispatched by a broken wagon wheel. And then he's resurrected, I think, from the broken wagon wheel in 1972. Because don't they take the blood off the wagon wheel for 1972? Yes, sort of. You have, uh, I believe it's Ralph Bates, I think. He is dispatched in the original timeline by the wagon wheel. And then your groovy guy in 1972 performs a ritual that brings him back in 72. 
Yeah, I'm trying to remember it all too because it's like the way that they dispatch Dracula in these films. Some of them get really far out there, like getting tangled up in hawthorns and stuff. Uh-huh. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and they kind of blur together, especially when you exactly. watch them out of order as a kid. <laughs> oh, no doubt. Yeah. No doubt. That would be an interesting through line to try and find. That would be a good supercut to do all of the all of the dispatching and resurrections from the movies yeah. in order. <laughs> yeah, it would be. It totally would be. <laughs> All right, so the shot of Dracula and the priest in front of the door, this is another one of those shots that really accents the beauty of the cinematography, where Dracula's resurrected and he's clearly fed from the priest because the priest is now in thrall, but he hasn't mm-hmm. turned him completely yet. He's just sort of turned him into his servant or, or whatever. Now, does this happen because of the blood that dripped from the head, or do you think he actually drank from the priest off camera? Because you never see this Dracula drink from a man. You know, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know that I have an answer. I cannot recall any point in time seeing the Christopher Lee Dracula drink from another man. He always drinks from women. And the reason I feel that is because they really sexualize Christopher Lee's attacks. Yes. Yes, they do. They feel like he's raping somebody, which makes them horrific to watch. Yes, they do. There's a there's a scene that's coming up that I think is really, really sexualized. Yeah. Okay. So you saw it too. Okay. Well, when we get to that, I have the notes on that. So. Oh, yeah. But anyway, where they're right there in front of the door and Dracula sees the cross and then turns and then the camera's right there and he's towards the right of the frame and then he's asking who did this, who did this, or who has done this, who has done this. And then the priest comes into the left side of the frame and then they have this two shot that's like this really nice close up in the widescreen frame. And then you see the cross is pretty much like just about dead center to the frame and they're on either mm-hmm. side of it. And then they're profile shots of both of them, but Dracula's turned almost the whole way facing camera that shot Mm -hmm. is so beautifully done and so well composed and it's one static shot where they move the actors in and out at that point and i just sat there and marveled at it i really love that yeah i think that folks forget how good some of these films and the cinematography and the way they're laid out really is i don't know about popular opinion about this film in particular you're still early on in the lee cycle this has always been one that i've really enjoyed and like you said you know you've got freddie francis as director stepping in for uh, an injured Terrence Fisher, I think it's underrated. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's something that you had actually said earlier when we were discussing the set design and the beauty of the cinematography. We were referring to, you, you referred to everyone as being craftsmen. You know, mm-hmm. every, every person involved in this film is in fact a craftsman. And it's something that you don't necessarily see. This may be a bygone era where this type of production work, you know, with just the very simplistic things that they had and, and just having to do everything practically i mean it's kind of a dead art at this point because it's all let's throw up a bunch of green screen blocks and call it a day <laughs> exactly and i think that even the fact that we, we discussed that they were trying to keep some semblance of continuity is almost a marketing value because no one at this point was thinking about home video there was no such thing there was only catching this film at the theater and then on television if they showed it it was almost like a you know if we keep following a storyline even just kind of sort of it is a hook for people to come in and see the same dracula each time yeah and it's a really interesting story and i think universal should take a note for their united monsters universe world they're trying to create Mm -hmm. they have the template here with what hammer has already done (laughs) 
Absolutely. And even uh, the original Universal films where there was some semblance of continuity for a while before the full-blown Monster Mash films, they've got the template right there. Yeah, with, absolutely. With these and them. I don't think they're going to follow it. Well, it, it seems to me like they've decided to follow the continuity of the original Mummy films, which is none. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, it's, you know, the Mummy that just came out, I will see on cheap riddle or netflix i'll see it oh yeah i'll watch it too but i wasn't going to go see it in the theater (laughs) no because it's a tom cruise film at the end of the day you have to make choices you know if tom cruise is in a film it becomes a tom cruise film and that's just the way it is with incidental mummy (laughs) exactly exactly and so at this point have they thrown out dracula untold altogether as part of the the series oh they did that when it didn't hit well in the box office because at first they were like this is going to be it this is the start and then it tanked and they went no it's not we're gonna do it again this mummy this this mummy this is gonna be the start (laughs) exactly and and you know what uh it's it's all to do to marvel it's everyone's trying to have their own cinematic universe now because of the success of the marvel films and it's not that you can't do it it's just that the reasons for doing it they want the united universes because they think that's what sells which Uh it could but they already have templates they already have existing things that they could follow that they could modernize and bring it in i mean and again, mm-hmm. we're, again, we're off track. But anyway, <laughs> it bears to, it bears to be said that this film shows that without even trying, you can have a united monster universe. Yes. Just just from the continuity they did with Dracula, because I mean, he he shows up in 1972. I mean, how much easier is it to just have a movie with Dracula? He gets put underwater, or you know, gets destroyed in some way, and then one of his servants resurrects him. Say around the time that the werewolf or the Wolfman is happening, you know, right there in that film exactly you know and then he then controls the wolf man or 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 whatever you know the uh-huh. uh, oh here's a here's a good one for you the mummy exhibit that you know Tutankhamun or whoever is going to be coming back from that museum also has a wing for you guessed it dracula dracula exactly <laughs> you know and it's the historical figure that we know is dracula it turns out he's actually the fictional character that we know is dracula they just use the armor and all the stuff kind of like with francis ford coppola's movie did there a little bit Congratulations, Court. You're smarter than all the film executives in Hollywood. (laughs) But they won't listen to me, Brad, because I'm also Uh, crazier. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you'll take chances. (laughs) Exactly. All right. So to bring it back to the film, another thing that was one of those shocking moments that just felt so out of left field and just so horrific and, and terrifying is once Dracula realizes he cannot get to his castle, the first thing that crosses his mind is this man is pissed on my home. I shall now go get him. He needs something to travel in. So what do they do? They dig up a body and they dump the body of a woman right out of her coffin, who is mostly rotten and pretty horrific looking for 1968. And that scene is still completely effective and gross to me. As soon as mm-hmm. you watch her roll under the wagon and you know, they ran her over with the wagon too, because they just left her <laughs> under the wagon. <laughs> it's just so horrific. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, Dracula. He may be petty, but he's no nonsense. <laughs> Zero fucks given. And he is riding around in a coffin that someone rotted in. And you know that doesn't smell good. And he does not care. No, he didn't care at all. Nope. He just needed something to block out the sunlight to travel in. Exactly. <laughs> and it just seems to me, I was like, you can't go into your castle and get your own coffin. But they could have gone to a funeral home and stolen a fresh coffin. 
true. <laughs> you know, that's true. Or does it have to be something? You know, if we want to go back to the Lugosi and the original book mythos, doesn't it have to be like contain the essence of the soil from his own home? You know, where, yeah. where he has to be in a box of the earth of his own home. Yeah. So perhaps because the person was rotting and because it was in the ground so long, this coffin automatically fulfills that need, and therefore he can get into it. Well, and also they've already broken mythos because. How does the priest see Dracula the first time? Oh, you're right, because it's a reflection in the water, right? Exactly. <laughs> now, there is a thing that I had just read. Um, I saw this somewhere online, uh, one of the monster kid groups or you know horror movie fanatic groups that i'm in in facebook somebody had posted a meme where they talked about how the reason that vampires reflections can't be seen in mirrors but you could see them in other things is mm -hmm. that old mirrors the original style mirrors were silver backed for the reflection it was actual silver and because silver is uh, a metal that is supposed to be a purifying metal in, in some of these beliefs it will react with vampires and their reflections will not be shown in this silver metal Interesting. But nowadays, all of the mirrors are aluminum-backed, and aluminum tends to be, let's just say, a more forgiving metal. So it will, yeah. it will reflect a vampire because it's, you know, it can reflect evil's reflection. Now, given that the water is coming past Dracula's castle and that the ground is probably saturated with his evil, perhaps that water can show his reflection for that same reason. Very interesting. <laughs> there is also, I don't know how familiar you are with Dracula from 1979 with Frank Langella. It's but there's a, been a little while, but yeah, I, I remember it. There's a scene underground with Van Helsing uh, where a vampire, I don't remember, I think it's Lucy. You see her in the water's reflection as well. And I wonder if because it's underground and it may not be consecrated earth, if it may be saturated with her evil and therefore you could see her reflection or because it's so. water, you could see her reflection. Maybe so. You see, I always thought that the reflection thing initially was so that they could sneak up behind you and you couldn't see them if you were in a mirror or something along those lines. But mm -hmm. that, that also could just have been something that they made so that you could use a silver mirror to identify vampires or, or what have you. Yeah. And like we said before, Hammer plays pretty fast and loose with their <laughs> mythos as far as what a, a vampire can do and can't do. Uh, in fact, that's one reason why I love Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter so well is because Brian Clements does some different things with the vampire mythos. There's that, and it also sets that there are different types of vampires and therefore mm -hmm. different ways to kill them, different ways that they react, and different things that they have going on with them. And unfortunately, that film never kind of got its due until later years. Mm -hmm. but it was kind of the, the age where Hammer was starting to lose its luster and started losing money on its pictures because the world had moved on from these fantastical and wonderful films, unfortunately. They had, absolutely. I think Texas Chainsaw Massacre was the nail in the coffin, if I'm permitted a pun. Uh, I think that was the beginning of it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Uh, but no, I, very interesting about the silver. I, I did not know that. Yeah, that was, a, that was a thought that somebody had. And then also in uh, Guillermo del Toro's, well, the adaptation of Guillermo del Toro's books that he did with Chuck Hogan, and Chuck Hogan's kind of the main showrunner. But in The Strain, that's something that they have, too, where the vampires will be reflected just fine in modern-day mirrors, but silver-backed mirrors that are more valuable or, or what have you. Their reflections are shaky and, and twitchy, and it's a way to tell if, you know, one that's covering themselves in makeup to not look so Nosferatu-like, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, to cover up their stregor 
enjoy ways. You can actually hold up a silver mirror and if their reflection gets shaky and, and jittery, then you can tell for sure that, you know, it's glamour or this, you know, weird makeup thing that they're doing to try and cover themselves. Very interesting. Yeah, it, it's a really cool idea. I like the idea that, you know, silver is this purifying metal and that's why it can kill evil like werewolves and be used to harm or identify a vampire too. Yeah, and it also kind of goes to show about how craftsmanship in the old world was highly valued and now you can go buy a mirror from Walmart for nothing. <laughs> yeah. To my next note, um, just need to say this right flat out. This may be my absolute favorite Michael Ripper performance of any Hammer film he's been in. I really? love him in this film. I love the character and he uh -huh. has, it's certainly the one that he gets the most lines in. I can't think of a performance where he gets more lines and more to do with his character other than just being a guy showing up here and there. You may be right. I don't know that I can think of something. I loved it so much that actually is our next clip. <laughs> Making ourselves pretty, are we? <laughs> You're going to meet her mama for the first time tonight, aren't you? Now, you take a good look at her mama, my boy, because that's exactly what your girl's going to look like after you've married her. That is, if her mama lets you marry her. And why shouldn't she? Why shouldn't she? So why should she? What are you? Young, hardworking, good-looking, abstemious. You're a second-class pastry cook. And if you work hard, you may in time become a first-class pastry cook. And who'll want to marry you then? Up every morning before dawn? Ah, uh, that's not for me, Max. No? No. I'm ambitious. Oh, I see. Those books of yours, eh? And where are they going to get you? Away from here for a start. So you don't like it here, eh? I did say that, Max. I do like it here. It keeps me fit. And I have time off to study. And the food's good? And the food's good. I'm grateful. Really, I am. Funny way to show it. What I don't understand is what you hope to get out of these books of yours. What life's about? Something of the truth? The truth? Oh, what do you want with that? Now, look, if you want to be a success in life, forget the truth. I can't just forget it. Well, then stay a pastry cook. That way it doesn't matter. Do you want any money? Not tonight, Max. Oh. Well, mind your manners. And don't go telling her mother the truth about the way she looks and what her cooking tastes like. That truth she can do without. God, you got to love Max, right? <laughs> yeah, you do. He's, he's laying the truth on him. Well, there's that, and you can tell just by the way he's talking to him where he's like, look, uh, don't get your hopes up. I mean, what do you have to offer right now? You're a second-class pastry cook, and if you bust your ass, you may someday be a, you know, first-class pastry cook, but that's no life for, uh, you know, to, to be a good husband or anything like that. So you, you're up early in the morning, you're working so hard, and, you know, and he's like, oh, but you're working on these books, and they're just kind of establishing this other character, <laughs> you know, that of Paul, and, and Max is there, but you can totally tell like i'm paying attention to the things that max is saying and the way that michael ripper actually delivers this dialogue and the looks on his face you get this general feeling that paul's kind of an orphan and max has taken him in and has been raising him but instead of just being like a child labor worker he's basically adopted him almost and this is like his son to him like he has those mm -hmm. those feelings and then mm -hmm. his interactions with even uh xena later on and then the people that are in his pub as a as he's as he is a landlord here uh he really seems to genuinely care for every single person that he comes into contact with and he's just this really warm and wonderful character and i just want to see an entire film of like the adventures of max landlord extraordinaire <laughs> <laughs> 
like I, I love this character. Like I love Michael Ripper and everything, but he usually gets to play, you know, just a, a bit part, maybe delivers a line or two. But Michael Ripper could have been a really great supporting actor. And I think he probably should have played the father of every heroine or hero in every single Hammer film. Absolutely. <laughs> He's so I, good at it. Really is. Yeah, you I think you're probably right. I can't think of a film where he has more to do than in this one. It's certainly a wonderful thing to see, particularly with this character of Max, because I mean he could have been playing it a really cheeky or you throw you throw like a like a bigger name than Michael Ripper in there. Like you put I don't know, for instance, Oliver Reed, right? And then mm-hmm. you have Oliver Reed playing this guy who's taking care of Paul. And Oliver Reed's gonna play it a little more swarthy. He's gonna be a little bit more charismatic. But you're gonna mm-hmm. kind of get the feeling that maybe he's actually saying all this stuff to Paul because he's trying to steal Maria for himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which let's face it, it's Oliver Reed. All he has to do is just be there and then everybody wants to be with him. <laughs> Exactly. What what hope does uh, Roger Daltrey here have against Oliver? <laughs> he really is a Roger Daltrey lookalike, isn't he? he re- yes, he is. <laughs> you better, you better, you bet. <laughs> better, you better, you bet. <laughs> My next question, now that we're in the pub proper when Paul comes upstairs, mm-hmm. is, is there a more complicated and prone to injury drinking game than what is shown in this film? <laughs> <laughs> Not that I'm aware of. Just looking no. at that, I'm like, you guys are just asking for concussions, broken yes. glass stuck in your foreheads. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, it's very, very tricky. Very tricky proposition, especially if you're about to go somewhere where you don't need to be covered in beer. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if you noticed or not, but I actually, whenever they did the picture of the beer glass on the end of the broom handle, if you look mm-hmm. close enough, you could kind of see, I don't know if it was epoxy or, or what it was, but you could see a very clear like glue right around the, the rim of the bottom of the glass that the, that the broom handle actually held into. And I think they just literally glued that looked like a 22 ounce <laughs> <laughs> pint glass. Yes. Yeah, twenty-two ounce no, uh, a beer glass right on the I end of the brewstick. I didn't notice, but I would have. I would have cheated too. <laughs> well, for the filmmaking purposes, you definitely want to have it glued on there because you don't want a a nice glass falling and breaking on one of your actors' beautiful faces. Not at all. <laughs> yeah, and I I like the game. I think it's a really cool idea where you know you're you're spinning around, getting dizzy, and you try and drink as much beer out of these the same size stein as you can without dropping that glass and then you pass it on to the next person when you give up it's kind of a cool thing but do it out of a plastic pitcher (laughs) (laughs) if you're gonna play this game kids (laughs) yeah you you don't want glass in your eye but of course they do use this as you mentioned paul's all dressed up and ready to go and uh the ever fiery headed xena is there to basically talk about her indiscretions with men and how she has no qualms about uh what she likes to do uh yeah i enjoy this character i liked seeing a female that's just basically like yeah i know what guys want but i'm using them more than they're gonna use me you really get that feeling from her you do well you never get the feeling that she is a villain really you know no, she's a strong but very sexualized character, which is exactly. extremely rare for the late 60s. Very rare. Yeah, you, usually you see 
a sexualized woman and she's either a villain where she uses the sexuality as a weapon or she's like the eternal victim where she's constantly looking to seek and find the approval. And in this case, I feel like Xena's like, for her, Paul is a catch. And Mm -hmm. even though she's had other men and has no qualms about sleeping with whoever she wants whenever she wants, she wants Paul. She she kind of looks like she's going for Paul. And I don't think she wants Paul for a relationship. I think she wants Paul as just another notch. Like, he's a conquest. It's almost to where the script is flipped and it would be like a male character that would be going after Maria and trying to snag her away from Paul. But mm-hmm. instead they wrote a, a female character named Xena who's trying to snag Paul <laughs> if just for one night. <laughs> exactly. I think you're right. Yeah. I really like that. I, I, I never really saw it before. I always just kind of saw, hey, redhead with large breasts. All right, movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was kind of interesting to watch this time around. Yeah, and she doesn't really have any, what's the word I'm looking for? There's not really any. Uh, She's not you know, sinister she, in any way. Exactly. Sinister. Thank you. Yeah, I kind of got the feeling that's where you were going. So Yeah, it was. It was. It's been a long day. Even though she's extremely sexualized and even though she has that feeling of making Paul another conquest and that's what she just wants out of Paul, she still has this more innocent edge to her where she's like, she wants Paul, but she doesn't want him while he's drunk on schnapps. And she, you know, she wants him to be able to make the decision, but she's still curious enough to take his pants off to see what she might be dealing with if she ever gets the chance. <laughs> exactly. And this actress, Barbara Ewing, she actually went on to write eight novels to date. Wow, that's incredible. (laughs) That's eight more than I'll ever write. Me too. (laughs) Now, I did notice, too, that during the scene right after Paul gets the beer dumped on him because they trick him and uh, they basically set him up to where he gets covered in beer and they ruin his beautiful flowers and make him smell like he's been out drinking all night. Mm -hmm. That's when Veronica Carlson comes barreling into the bar. And I noticed I stopped breathing the minute she came on screen. I just I just stopped for a minute. I was like, (gasps) uh huh. And I think she has that effect on me every time she pops up in a film. <laughs> Elizabeth said that she was her favorite uh, hammer starlet, and she's certainly up there for me. Now, I am also not a fan of blondes, which anybody who listens to my show or me for five seconds will realize. And yet, Veronica Carlson captures my imagination and also literally took my breath away this time around watching the film. She makes you cross that line, does she? (laughs) She makes me forget about all the blondes that hurt me before, Brad. (laughs) Oh, man. Veronica Carlson, she's healing Court's heart. (laughs) All right, so that leads to the dinner and after the meal and Paul seems to actually smooth things out and even though he's a little rough around the edges he seems to charm the Monsignor and also Maria's mother as well but then they have a conversation post dinner and that leads to our next clip not enough people say what they really mean these days many people speak only to impress not stopping to think if what they are saying is really true Happens in the church, too, you know. I hear it only too often on my rounds. There are six churches here, you know, Paul? Yes, sir. Which one do you attend, by the way? Paul doesn't come from Kynenberg, Uncle. This isn't his home. I know, but... He works very hard in the bakery. He doesn't have much time. But on Sundays? I don't go to church, sir. You don't go to church? No, sir. You're not a Protestant, are you? No, sir. Thank heaven for that. I'm an atheist, sir. I beg your pardon? I'm an atheist, sir. You mean you deny the existence of God? I don't deny it. I just don't believe it. It's my own opinion, sir. Do you know who I am? Yes, sir. And you come here to my house... Speaking this blasphemy? You asked for my beliefs, sir, and I've given them. It was an honest answer, sir. You said you liked people to be honest. Don't be impertinent. Would you like me to leave, Frau Muller? Yes, I think it will be best. 
Maria. I'm sorry, Frau Muller. Thank you very much for your hospitality. Maria. Good night, sir. All right. Well, there you go. Looks like in this time frame, being an atheist is tantamount to just saying, I would like to worship the devil with your niece. (laughs) Yes, it's it's only slightly worse than being a Protestant, apparently. (laughs) I almost was like ready for them to make a joke where he would have gone, well, at least you're not a Protestant. I can work with you from here. (laughs) You know? Yeah. you know, it's uh, it's certainly a big thing to tackle in a in a 1968 horror film. I think this entire concept, of course, I mean, it lends itself obviously to the issue that we've already been discussing about faith. But I think that it's also a positive for atheists because Paul's a decent chap. <laughs> I actually tend to think that whoever may have been writing this made Paul an atheist because they may have been one themselves. Because my experience, at least with my fellow atheists, are people like Paul. You mm-hmm. know, I see a lot of myself in Paul, where he's honest to a fault, which I am, but he's mm-hmm. also quite kind, which I strive to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And he's very polite, even though he may be a little rough around the edges. I see a lot of myself, or at least who I would like to be as a human being, in whose Paul is. And Mm -hmm. I actually really felt this conversation at the dinner. I mean, I feel it every time that I watch it, but watching it this time around, I really kind of felt it where it kind of broke my heart because I was really identifying with Paul. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, crushing on Veronica Carlson's character, Maria, at the same time, you feel that, (laughs) you feel that, that in one moment, because he stated a personal belief, this happy life that could possibly have been his is completely stripped away from him. And rather than being impertinent and rather than being very accosting, he Mm -hmm. just simply says to the mother, do you wish me to leave? He actually has this kind of conversation where he does almost go in to defend himself. The Monsignor goes right into accosting him and it's, it's, it takes you back for a moment until you kind of realize that this is the man that we were talking about. It does kind of go back to now I'm speaking solely of the Monsignor senior here in his character's reaction but we were talking about at what point does faith become arrogance and mm-hmm. at this point we see at what point does faith actually end up becoming intolerance because the route that you would expect a man of faith that's that far up in the church to go not necessarily how dare you speak this blasphemy is well you haven't been given a chance obviously would you like to hear my side of it you know because you would think he would go towards that testimony that that would be the thing that he would want to do where he would open up a dialogue you know and want to discuss it with him but mm-hmm. instead he takes that his god is infallible his faith as far as he is concerned is absolute therefore his decision making and his choices are absolute and also infallible and right. he immediately just accosts the young man and demands that he not be in his own home and see here's my take on what he should have done in my opinion uh, Christians are it must be remembered imperfect people what I would have done was I would have said court or Paul. (laughs) Court, here's what I believe. And if you ever want to talk about it, I would be happy to talk to you about it. But I'm not going to shove it down your throat because it is your God-given, in my opinion, right to not believe. Exactly. Uh, That's that's the route that it should be taken. I totally agree. And I think that sometimes Christians as a whole forget. Like, I know that you have known a Christian in your life that if they knew you were an atheist would have thought you evil somehow. 
Oh yeah, plenty. Even and, in my own family, actually. <laughs> yes, and that is not the truth. I know two atheists pretty well, and both are very kind and nice. You know, it kind of goes back to we can all agree on gigantic, big right and wrongs, but it's the smaller ones that we kind of get cloudy on, I think. It's our perception of what's right and wrong. But, I mean, that's what I would say to you. Hey, if you'd ever like to talk about Jesus, I'm here. And if you don't, you won't hear from me. You know, that's the way it is. If you truly believe that if you die without knowing Jesus and you meet someone that doesn't know Jesus, why would you run them off? Yeah, why would you try and chase them away? If why? If, why would you do that? It's counter it's counterproductive and it's not what the Bible teaches, in my opinion. But a lot of people are like that. And like I said to start this diatribe, it must be remembered that Christians are imperfect human beings. <laughs> This is why I pointed it out earlier, too, that I thought that the writer of this film may possibly, or at least the screenwriter for these scenes that are involving Paul and the creator of the character, I believe that this person may have been an atheist, and I believe that they put this on the very far extreme to open up this sort of dialogue or or Mm -hmm. this kind of thought process for someone who would have that knee-jerk reaction to someone who is an atheist. Mm -hmm. Because I would tell you this, if I were writing this film... I would put both men at fault because then it makes it more of not necessarily like a a realistic thing because it's certainly realistic the way that this happens. This is a reaction that very well could happen for someone who is very much like the Monsignor. However, I think that it would have probably played a little bit better if you would have put a little fault on Paul's shoulders as well to where him not only just being honest, but also when the Monsignor accosts him, if he were to strike back with Mm -hmm. with a little bit of vocalization and started a bit more of a heated debate on his side instead of immediately just being polite. Now, it wouldn't have made Paul the hero that he's supposed to be in the film, but at the same time, it makes this scene to where you have these two opposing viewpoints and they're both so absolute within their beliefs that there is no wiggle room that they can't respect the other person's side and it makes Mm -hmm. that dynamic in this dinner scene, in this argument, that's much more effective so that when we see what happens later on in the film where the two resolve their issues, it makes it more of a a way to where you see, as we talked before with Twins of Evil, where the sort of bringing together of faith and of a sort of cognitive, rational uh, belief structure that, you know, would happen to be with atheism or was science before that made the other character an atheist with uh, David Warbeck. And in this this case, Paul is also a very learned and uh, educated young man. So I believe that a lot of the stuff that Paul is basing his lack of faith on is from the reading about other religions and probably came to the same conclusion I did as a young lad, where it's like, well, I would be a Christian because I was born in Western Pennsylvania, because that's how I was raised there. But if I were born in India, would I I not believe in Buddha? If I were born in ancient Greece, would I not believe in Zeus? <laughs> right. It's one of those there, kind of things. There's two things. One, I think that the priest character from the previous film, played by Andrew Keir, probably would have clapped Paul on the back and would have said, ah, a challenge and had been, you know, much friendlier about it. But also on Paul's side, there's a little bit of when in Rome, do as the Romans do, where he might not have had to have actually said, well, I'm an atheist. He could have said, well, you know, I just don't have time to get to church and kind of eased him into that as well. That does lead to some of the questions that I had I wrote down where the first one was, should Paul have lied? And then the next one is, uh, should Paul have evasively sort of changed the subject or tried to move away on that? And uh, I think the reason that Paul didn't, though, and this is just me answering it effectively because I kind of know the the route that you're going here. And I I think the reason that Paul didn't do that is he felt that the Monsignor just said, I respect honesty more than anything. So therefore, logic 
logically speaking, perhaps the Monsignor will just be happy that I will just tell him the truth instead of lying. Mm, right. But unfortunately, the Monsignor not being the pastor from the previous film, that's not the sure. kind of reaction he's going to have. Well, and, and you know, Paul knows who her uncle is, I would assume. Now, I know he came home and they weren't really expecting him, but I do know that if I were to come eat with you and your wife, I would not say, okay, so do you mind if I have a prayer out loud? I'm in your house and your rules apply, but obviously once the discussion is finished, this is simply about moving in the film along in the direction that they need it to move along in. Yeah, absolutely. And I think they could have actually moved it a little further plot point wise by having Paul be equally as accosting where he's like, you know, it's not very Christian of you to be judgmental because of my mm-hmm. being an atheist. Aren't you supposed to, like the things that we discussed, aren't you supposed to try and understand me and have sympathy and empathy and mm-hmm. bring me over to your belief structure by talking to me? Isn't throwing me out and telling me to get out of your home the exact opposite of what you should do and and by having that dynamic where they're arguing and then having say maria's mother come in at this point during the argument and being like what's all this then and then him immediately going and apologizing and say should i leave that makes mm-hmm. it that makes it for even better dramatic effect for the reconciliation later as well and i'm sure there's probably a little bit of is he going to turn my niece into an atheist <laughs> worry worry going on is it something she can catch on their wedding night <laughs> well you know i have known an atheist that had children that started going to church and they did not care for it so i mean i, I suppose it could be seen both ways but no i think that paul could have handled it better but he was very polite and i think that at the bare minimum that's what the situation called for yeah and as we mentioned earlier it may have just been something to use as just sort of a plot point to propel things forward to where Paul messes up at dinner and the easiest way to make someone mess up at dinner with a Monsignor is to admit that you're an atheist and <laughs> yeah, it's, you can make that slightly worse by showing up uh, with the beer all over you <laughs> the smelling of a, a of a night of debauchery and then confessing oh. to being an atheist <laughs> well you know it, it's funny did you notice that they made the distinction between beer and hard liquor yeah where he says he doesn't drink well hard liquor anyway but he might have beer and they're like yeah we could smell dude <laughs> yeah but it, but it almost seems like the Monsignor doesn't mind the beer. It's it, Oh, it's not whiskey. So that's cool. Yeah. And the Monsignor realizes that this is his one vice that he allows himself because he's throwing back quite a few little snooters. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, and you know, there's nothing, you know, I don't think, and I don't want to speak for all Catholic. I'm not a Catholic, so I can't, but it's been my understanding that the Catholics don't really have an issue with, with alcohol consumption. Well, if that were the case, I don't think Matt would be remaining a Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he he has faith and and he he loves God and all, but, you know, beer. (laughs) Understand. understand. Well, you know, Jesus turned the water into wine at at the wedding, and he did so... Because at the, uh, in my opinion, one of the reasons, obviously, it was a miracle that he did this, but also he was at a wedding and they ran out of wine, and that was kind of embarrassing for the hosts. <laughs> you know, seriously, you know, Jewish weddings were a were a big deal; they still are. So, you know, this was an a, a, an embarrassing inconvenience, and he took care of it. So, uh, I've always thought that to be really interesting. So they have this sort of motif of traveling over rooftops that Maria uses to visit Paul. It's sort of how she sneaks out at night, and it's. Mm-hmm 
because all the buildings in the city are, are together. And so they're sort of interconnected through rooftops that are extremely close together. And she can leave her home. And it's not even a few blocks away where she can walk across the top. This is an extremely unique and fun little story bit for this type of film. And I really like this element of the film. It's gorgeous. Uh, it's typically done at nighttime. Uh, the cinematography, the sets uh, of the rooftops is just astounding. They really get their money's worth too, because this becomes a motif of how to get from one location to the other in the film, where mostly, exactly. where mostly you would probably see her trying to sneak downstairs and mm-hmm. out a front door. Instead, she exits her window and goes across the rooftops, and it's so neat. It establishes that Dracula doesn't even have to transform into a bat to go get this girl either. <laughs> no, not at all. And some. Something that we've not mentioned yet that I'm sure people that have seen this film are sitting there thinking, why haven't they mentioned this yet? The uh, colored filters when Dracula or his castle is on screen. Yeah, I thought that was just a problem with the particular print that I had, but it's almost like an optical effect where it goes around the outer edges of the film, right? They are colored filters that Freddie Francis owned and actually used when he was the cinematographer on the film The Innocents, which I'm sure you've seen. They belong to him, and they are crimson, amber, and yellow, and he used those on the sides of the screen to tint whenever Dracula or the castle is on screen. Yeah, it gives this very otherworldly, ethereal feel to it, and it it also, like, you can kind of really see the edges of the wide angle lens where it starts to fisheye with those filters on there even more. Mm-hmm. And it gives it this like sort of pseudo reality. Now I didn't really notice it. it. It becomes more and more prominent, the more wrath that Dracula gets. Mm-hmm. And that's when it becomes very obvious towards the end of the film. Oh, it's also a very William Castle kind of thing to do. Yeah. I mean, I can't think of another film that really, without it being a called out gimmick, you know, something that they call attention to. Now in Shakarama uh, vision. <laughs> exactly. And the fact that he used these on the black and white classic film, The Innocence, is just amazing. It just, you know, because he, he was a cinematographer, a cameraman first and foremost, uh, Freddie Francis. And he was a cinematographer on The Innocence. So to think that he used it on this classic film from seven years before just even adds that much more gravitas, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Full confession, I've not seen The Innocence, but to hear you speak so highly of it, I will seek it out. And chances Oh, really? Are, maybe I have seen it, and I just don't remember the title, because there's well, tons of movies I saw as a kid that I never caught the title of. It is an adaptation of The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. So it is a ghost film. Uh, it stars Deborah Kerr, is the, the main actress, and also... The little girl is played by someone that I know you know, Pamela Franklin of The Legend of Hell House. Okay, okay, you know what? I think I may have seen this. I just didn't recognize the title. Yes, sir. It is a great film. And if you've not seen it in a while, you know, October's right around the corner. I would highly recommend you watch it. There is a Criterion Blu-ray, which is gorgeous. It's directed by a gentleman named Jack Clayton. And the cinematography is actually by Freddie Francis. So, and I think you'll find that Jack Clayton did some some very nice films. But no, this is, it's definitely up there with The Haunting and The Legend of Hell House as far as a haunted ghost film goes for me. I have seen this. Okay. Yes, I have seen it. I just did not remember the title. I watched yeah. this. I watched this with my sister when I was a kid in the middle of the day, and Ooh. she had nightmares for about two or three days afterwards from watching this. Yeah, I mean Truman I, Capote worked on the screenplay. Wow. Uh, it is a it is an excellent film, and of course Pamela Franklin. Who doesn't love Pamela Franklin? <laughs> yes. Yes. You know, Satan School for Girls. <laughs> 
the Innocence, the Legend of Hell How. I've turned this into a big thing, but he used those filters in the Innocence as well. It goes back to what we're talking about about them being craftsmen. He had these filters that he owned and he used them. Terrence Fisher was originally supposed to direct this film and he had a car accident and couldn't do it. So Freddie stepped in for him. You know, I think that explains why we have such glorious and beautiful cinematography. You have a Mm -hmm. cinematographer directing the film, working with an extremely talented cinematographer. So between the two of them, they probably were trying to compete for better shots. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. Or, Or if they collaborated, you know, peacefully, can you just imagine how they're like, well, what about this? And what about that? You know, and just have that wonderful back and forth where creativity really kind of flourishes that's oh yeah i picture oh, that yeah. <laughs> oh and you know there's probably some people that have seen this film that thought the same thing well this print has got some damage on it right you that's know exactly it's what not, I thought. it's not ostentatious it's not and I, I said william castle it's not where he's like look at this look at this look at this <laughs> i mean i can't think of another film off the top of my head that does something like this that doesn't call it out like that no and i, I think that you know the amber the the red and you're right it, it the colors change as dracula is getting more and more vengeful yeah and it becomes more and more obvious and and i think that's a very purposeful aesthetic choice where he's reaching the height of his rage and his his need for vengeance and particularly whenever and we we see it in later on in the film but whenever his first encounter with maria does not go the way that he had planned that is where it is the most prominent and the most borderline ostentatious where it's quite right there and that's when I'm like, is there something wrong? <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and I've always thought that because I've always had the same, you know, old DVD of this and I need to upgrade it. I need to get a hold of a Blu-ray. So <laughs> this was the second time that I'd seen this Blu-ray and it's better than the DVD. I know some folks had some issues with some transfers, but it's in the 2015 volume one horror classics with uh, the mummy taste the blood of Dracula. I believe here I've got it right here. I can tell you what's in that set. It's well worth your money. I, in my opinion, it's got taste the blood of Dracula. Dracula, the original Mummy Hammer film, Dracula's Risen from the Grave, and Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. I'll have to double check the box set I bet not too long ago that is like a ton of Hammer Horror classics that I imported from England. And I, oh, nice. I don't think that this is one of them that's in there, so I may have to double dip on some of the other movies just to get the Dracula Has Risen from the Grave Blu-ray. And see, that's another reason why you and I are kindred souls is because you and I have had discussions before about importing films and tracking down films, and that's something that I have always done well yeah you got to get the best quality version of a film that you have a modicum of respect for otherwise you can't claim to have a modicum of respect for it exactly (laughs) no like dracula prince of darkness i own two dvds and the blu-ray dracula prince of darkness i imported from overseas it came in that booklet i know that much for sure I bought mm-hmm. the Americanized Blu-ray of it, so I have three Blu-rays of it, and wow. two DVDs, one VHS tape, and I think I have an old-school laser disc somewhere of it still. <laughs> and see, it, it, you couldn't you couldn't bear to part with that laser disc because it's part of your collection. Well, that and when you tack them up on the wall, they just look glorious, like old-school records. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> okay, but back to what we were discussing here. Sorry, man. Oh no, it's absolutely not a problem. This is why I like to take loose notes because this kind of dialogue is what brings people to this episode. It's it's different and it's just two film fans hashing it out over top of a film. 
as a loose yes, framework. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> is Paul's speech that he ends up giving as he's starting to get drunk, is this uh, about him being honest? Is this played up a little bit too melodramatic or does it actually tug at your heartstrings? Does this work for you or do you feel that it's a little too melodramatic in the film? It works for me. I think they do a good job of showing, like I said, showing that Paul is a decent guy. And I think at this point, he feels like he's blown his shot with this upper class girl that cares about him. And so I think it drives him back into the arms of Xena. He has her bring him the schnapps and she says, you don't drink schnapps. And he says, I do now. (laughs) It, It works for me. Does it work for you? It depends upon the mood that I'm in. If I'm mm. if I'm feeling about salty, I'm like, oh, what is this melodramatic shit? Oh, just <laughs> make with the monsters, man, or, or bring Veronica Carlson back on screen. But <laughs> when I remove that asshole filter <laughs> that I have sometimes, and I just right. sit back and watch it as a as a person trying to appreciate the film for what it is, and and not try to be you know judgmental. It completely works for me, and it is quite moving. By looking at it with a critical eye, it kind of, uh, and I'm making myself more open to feel emotions for the film than what I normally would, than just, you know, having mon- like make with the Monsters Man and throw some popcorn back. <laughs> but uh, mm-hmm. this time around, it definitely works for me, and I do feel what he's saying. And I think it's because this time around, I identify more with Paul than I have before previously, and that has nothing to do with my infatuation with Veronica Carlson's Maria. I swear, <laughs> nothing at all. But uh, Nothing at all. No, nothing at all. Especially at this point, because I also kind of noticed and I got the feeling where Xena's like, okay, he's broken. I'm going to use this to my advantage. And then immediately when he starts drinking, she goes, not like this. You you can almost see it on her face when she says, but you don't like to drink or you don't really drink. And even though she brings in the schnapps, she goes from being this uh, almost like huntress on the prowl for her conquest that she's finally able to get this wounded animal to a very nurturing and caring friend who no longer sees him as a sexual conquest but actually sees him as the hurt individual and I feel like Xena owns this scene more than Paul's lamenting and remorse. <laughs> Absolutely. She is a much better actress, I think, the more you see the film. She's actually nuanced. And also, you don't have sex with a drunk girl. And I think she feels the same way. She doesn't want to take advantage of him because he's heartbroken and drunk. And she actually takes care of him. Now, when Veronica shows up, or Maria, excuse me, uh, she is a little catty with Maria, which I, I enjoy as well. Because they're both very good-looking old ladies. <laughs> now, I do kind of like the idea, too, where once uh, once Maria makes it across and then ends up walking in and catching Xena putting Paul to bed, at first, Maria is very catty and very uh, mm-hmm. kind of like, what the hell, what are you doing? And, mm-hmm. you know, Xena then kind of goes out of that mode and she doesn't want to get Paul in trouble because she's still being a caregiver. But then she's like, well, nothing, I'm trying to take care of him. Would you like to put him to bed? And then... Uh-huh. Because Maria was catty and then she tried to be nice, then Maria draws it back a little bit. But I think she got Xena's hackles up. And then when Maria wasn't looking, that's when Xena starts going for Paul's pants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, she ta- Maria takes the shoe, his shoe away from Xena. That's when she does in it. In a too. very, yeah, very possessive manner. Yeah, absolutely. Where she's like, this is my man's shoe. You keep your hands off of my stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, Absolutely. And that's where, as soon as she takes the shoe away, I think that's what prompted Zena to be like, fine, <laughs> if you're going to be that way, then I'll get this. And she starts going for uh-huh. the pants. And she's not doing it in a very perverse manner, but for the time frame that the film is shot in, and also for the time frame 
that the movie's supposed to take place in. And given that Maria is already extremely possessive, you know Xena was doing that to be catty and get at her. <laughs> Absolutely, she was. Yeah. And I love that scene. The dynamic between the two of them where it's just like these two very powerful women with this helpless man-child, drunk and passed out on the bed. He can't take care of himself. And then these two powerful women are just like above him, just hovering above him going and being possessive and saying, you know, no, this is fine. You know, it's so fun. It is. It really is. All right. Just to kind of move a little forward here, then Xena's on her way home after we get another scene with uh, Michael Ripper where we were talking before where he's very caring even for her. He even offers to let her stay. Now, you kind of get the feeling that he's like, you can stay in my bed and keep me warm. <laughs> mm-hmm. To which I think she may have taken him up on that offer a few times, but I think she's had enough heartache for the night, so she doesn't want to deal with that. <laughs> right. Exactly. But she's like, no, I'll walk home. It's fine. You know, she needs to clear her head and keep herself fit. And I think also she just needs to get away from this situation altogether. And uh-huh. on the walk home, this is where things really start to get grim and dark for me. Because this scene where poor Zena is being chased down by the carriage that the that the priest is going to run her down with the carriage. And she's running to get away. And he's chasing her back and forth across the road. And then she actually does manage to get her away when, just when you think. Even though I've seen it before, I'm convinced he's going to run her down. <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and then she gets away. You get this brief moment of respite where she's catching her breath and you're like, okay, she's going to be fine. And then she looks up and right across from her. Nah, he was just trying to get her blood pumping so it's easier for Dracula to feed from her because he's right there. <laughs> she runs smack right into the count. It's all in one sequence and it's just solid, classical, wonderfully done horror. This it's just so oh, it just it just rips at your heartstrings and it terrifies you. And at the same time, you're like, of course. <laughs> Uh, yeah no it is it's a beautifully done sequence you think i don't know we know better being horror film fans but probably the first time you saw it you think she got away and of course she didn't yeah they do it so well and it's like i said it's all one sequence there's a few cuts here and there but i mean mostly it's the chase and then right there when you finally get that respite where you think she's going to be okay then they trick you (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's so effective. Like, indeed. like I said, like I said, it's so effective. It works on me, even though I know it's coming. Like I know it's there <laughs> and it still mm-hmm. works <laughs> because I think a part of you just wants Xena to get away. You just want her to be okay. Yeah, you do. And I, I think that's another thing that the film does really well too. The characters that fall victim to Dracula in this film, it's at the height of when they've done something that is the actual right thing when they become his prey. Yeah, I think there's something to be said for that, too. You're not going to get away from him. Doing a good deed does not make you safe, and Mm. your faith alone does not make you safe either. You know, there are external forces that are not under your control, and there's not anything that's going to stop Dracula once he puts his mind to it. The only thing that's going to save you is sheer dumb luck. I think is what this film is getting at. Yeah, and you know, if I were Dracula, I would have, when I was resurrected and saw that somebody had ruined my castle, I would have been like, okay, well, I'm just going to go on and do something else. But no, (laughs) he he is going to take care of this situation. Well, at certain points, Dracula's faith within himself becomes his own arrogance and does become his undoing. Every film, man, I think the things that end up making Dracula get defeated are him overstepping his bounds and knowing that he's doing something dumb. He does it anyway, just because of his rage. If he could just control his temper, particularly the hammer Dracula, control that blood rage or that temper or that blood lust just a little bit. But because he's such a beast, he's such a wild animalistic beast, the way that he's portrayed, he, he never controls it. And that's always 
Jesus's undoing. There's probably a little bit of confusion when you're resurrected from the dead. I would assume so, but uh, it's been such a long time since I've been resurrected from the dead. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we see the next morning after uh, Xena is run down and captured by Dracula, we see Paul and Maria leaving Paul's room. And this prompts a question as, are Paul and Maria sexually active? They did have an entire night together. She does seem very familiar with how to get to Paul's area without anybody noticing via rooftops. Do you think mm-hmm. Do you think they've been making the beast with two backs for a little while now? You know, I don't know. It's hard to say, really, I think. Uh, maybe. Because, you know, the Monsignor travels a lot so he is a presence but he's not always a present presence if that makes any sense at all uh so i don't know really how strong maria is i mean obviously in that faith you're not supposed to have sex before marriage so i don't really know i mean let's be honest if you were roger daltrey it'd be pretty hard to keep your hands off of veronica carlson let's be honest if veronica carlson is around you it's very hard for you to keep your hands off of her particularly when you already have permission <laughs> exactly Exactly. Yeah. I tend to think that, now this is just me spitballing here. She comes to visit him at night and they may spend some time together and they may have been not necessarily sexually active, but you know, kids, they're going to fool around. They're going to make out. They're going to do things. (laughs) Yes. I'm thinking that she never spent the night there until after this moment, because what happens when a young girl is told that something is forbidden, particularly in the later teen years when they're coming into fruition and becoming more of an adult and they want to assert themselves, if a parent figure like the Monsignor and also her mother is telling Maria to stay away from that damn dirty atheist Paul, what's the... (laughs) What's the first thing she's going to have the inclination to do? Run. Go be with Paul. Exactly. So I think that that confrontation at the dinner at this point may be what sent Maria over the edge and deciding that it was time for her and Paul to become sexually active. It's it's entirely possible. Would Dracula know? <laughs> would Dracula know? Um, yeah, I mean, would I mean, obviously, Udo Kier <laughs> has some trouble differentiating in virgin blood, <laughs> but uh, you know, would Dracula? Would Dracula know if she had had? had been deflowered? I'm thinking possibly in this realm of the Hammer Dracula world, particularly in this film where faith and the rules of religion seem to have more of a sway on good Mm -hmm. and evil more than it just being forces of nature that we have to deal with. I'm Mm -hmm. thinking that he does have that inclination and perhaps he has been waiting for the optimal moment to where Maria is less protected by whatever losing her virginity may have, you know, have implications sin-wise for her. And it's after this moment to where he makes the move and he decides to grab her. And Mm -hmm. I think you're onto the right track there. I think we're both kind of correct where this may be the first time that they've had sex. And because of that moment where she is no longer a virgin, she now becomes something that Dracula can actually get a hold of and get his teeth into because she now has, you know, sin. She's lost that innocence and she's moved into adulthood to where she's fair game for him almost. And he can now realize his revenge completely. And that also plays into a small moment later in the film where Dracula's with her and there's a doll on her bed and she throws the doll off the bed. 
Yeah, I have that in my notes. You're absolutely correct. Yeah, that's uh, that's one of those moments. Totally. Uh huh. And of course, he doesn't have any trouble snacking on Xena. So, <laughs> and actually, that's one of the things that I have in my notes too. That's actually my my next note there. Xena becoming a thrall to Dracula. Do you think that's an allegory for drug use or possibly her uh, nocturnal activities of acquiring a social disease, or perhaps it's more of her realizing that she's now into BDSM? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how far we should look into that. I I really don't know. I hadn't really given it any thought. Of course, vampirism has been used as an allegory for many, many things over the years. All three of those, actually. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. Drug use, uh, sexual deviancy, BDSM. Yeah, acquiring a social disease through uh, nocturnal activities and or BDSM. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. You know, and even though she's in Dracula's Thrall, it's kind of half-hearted in the doing his bidding in order to for him, for Dracula to acquire Maria because she, she says several times, you have me, why am I not enough? Well, it also reflects upon what's going on with Paul and Maria because Xena wants Maria or yeah, Zena wants Maria. Now, maybe in my head, that's what's going on, but <laughs> not in this movie, buddy. What Blu-ray do you have of this? <laughs> <laughs> I had a little Freudian slip there where I, I gave you a peek behind what's going on in my head while watching the movie. <laughs> right. But no, Xena uh, wants Paul and, you know, Paul is with Maria. Xena okay. gets her own man, so to speak, even if he is a victimizing rapist that is Dracula, because that's what he right. sure seems like. Now, it seems to me that Xena kind of enjoys, I hate to say it this way, but the rough and very grouse way that Dracula just grabs her and takes her and she is powerless to stop him. She seems mm -hmm. to like that more so than a lot of the other victims that Dracula has. And mm -hmm. she likes the feeling of being drank from or, or being fed from. So I think her hearing that he now wants Maria is just an echoing of how Paul has rejected Xena for Maria. Exactly. And it exactly. And, and because it's this more powerful, more evil being that completely controls her, that rejection is amplified and that is why she is that much more jealous. I agree. Uh, she wants Paul, but Paul wants Maria. She wants Dracula, but Dracula wants Maria. It's like, why doesn't anybody have time for Maria? <laughs> I mean, for Xena. Meanwhile, Court's just sitting here going, why doesn't Xena and Maria just, you know, go off together, Ingrid Pitt style and maybe take a bath you know exactly exactly <laughs> you know go to go to, <laughs> go to the school and lust for the vampire for a little bit for good old court you know just kind of yes. hang out see what happens <laughs> <laughs> i got a pretty good idea i've i've, heard, I've seen some movies <laughs> you're no stranger to jess franco you know where i'm going with this <laughs> uh, i know exactly where you're going <laughs> i've just embarrassed myself with my own perversions there sir <laughs> <laughs> do not be embarrassed okay so just to bring it back to the movie and get me out of this realm where i'm starting to get a little hot under the collar <laughs> all right so when using a flower sack to kidnap a maiden should it not be long enough to at least cover the maiden's arms so that they cannot fight back that's always been my policy yeah if you're going to kidnap someone with a sack make it a man-sized sack and make it to where you can scoop them from head to toe and then you grab it at the bottom and pull them and drag them. You know, that way when they hit the ground, you knock them out. I don't know how to kidnap people with a sack. What am I saying? <laughs> it sounds like you might know a little bit about it, but 
but no, that was that was this whole sequence here, the kidnap and him looking for. I think that was so well done. I really like the fact that Dracula sure seems to love using family members for revenge. It seems to be a thing for him. <laughs> it does. Well, I think that that's that's part of it. Is that if he succeeded in his conquest of of killing the Monsignor and and taking Maria, I why wouldn't he kill her mother? You know, why wouldn't he carry that on? I think he would. I think he probably his plan would be get to Maria first and then in her grief, take Maria's mother and then have the Monsignor basically have to realize at some point when he's confronted with the vampirized versions of both of them, that this is all his doing because of his, let's just say it in this case for the Monsignor, it was kind of arrogance to do what he did for he was consecrating and doing the exorcism for the ground there and he raised Dracula. And so Dracula's vengeance, he would see this as arrogance and trying to desecrate his home, you know, flipping the script there by trying to consecrate mm-hmm. it you are desecrating it in his mind and so you know why not go for the family member they destroyed his house so why not take his house down and his home isn't just this rented flat that he has his home is the people that he loves so i think it's turned exactly. about fair's play maybe yeah well i mean love and the, this whole concept is there even in the the novel as far as dracula sees a picture of mina when jonathan's there at the castle and then though he goes for lucy first he ends up trying to get mina and then also in a concept like uh, the Wordalak segment of Bava's Black Sabbath where the Wordalak comes after the ones that they love the most. And also Night of the Devils. <laughs> Night of the Devils as well. Yes, sir. It's, I, I, uh, have, uh, I have both you and Richard to thank for turning me on to that film. I went and... Really? Yeah, I went and ordered from Rero Video the Blu-ray right after you guys started talking about it. And oh, uh, nice. I, I paused I, I paused it, put the put the podcast on hold and waited till I got the movie, watched the movie, and then came back to the podcast because I had already seen uh the Wardalak segment from Black Sabbath. So <laughs> Yeah. I think that's an, Night of the Devils. I think that's an underrated film still. Absolutely. I, I absolutely love it. And if anybody out there has not heard the podcast that they did on Hello, This is the Doom Show, where they cover various incarnations of the Wardalak, and you've gotten this far, I highly recommend that episode. It's excellent. Well, thank you very much, sir. Yeah, you guys did your research like crazy on that. I was very impressed. We did. Yeah, we tracked down the uh, the short story that it was uh, loosely based upon. That was a lot of fun. No, we en- we enjoyed doing that one. And also the thing that I like about the idea of the Wardalak, that's also something Guillermo del Toro brought over towards his Strigoi in the Strain book series that ended up becoming the TV series that Chuck Hogan is the showrunner for. The, the first thing that these creatures do when you are turned into a Strigoi, which is their term for, you know, their type of vampire, anything that you love, the person that you love and you care for, the creature that inhabits you and turns you into this monster, it automatically takes that love and perverts it and twists it into a hunger to where you crave feeding on that person. So the thing you love the most is the thing you need to feed from the fastest or the quickest, and you have that desire. And that's what makes mm-hmm. it strong and makes that curse spread. And it's a horrifying that's- thought. It's very interesting. I've not seen that show or read the books, but I'm taking it that that you're a fan. Absolutely. Now, I have not read the books yet. I want to make it through all of the TV series. I was aware of it for the longest time, but I just, you know, life gets in the way. You can't get to everything for reading and everything. But the show is is something that I've enjoyed with my wife. There's some choices that are made on the TV show that I've not been happy with, but overall, the show I've absolutely loved. And the thing that I know will probably sell you on this at a certain point, a character shows up who at one point in time was like a Santo type 
type of uh, Lucha Libre who had a movie where he fought vampires and at, really? and at some point he uses these brass knuckles that form crosses so that he can punch the vampires that are cross forms and at some point he actually uses that to fight the, the, the vampires in the show. I had a major nerdgasm when that happened because it was like my world's <laughs> colliding. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, and if you're a fan of the way that the vampires are in Blade 2, um, that's, uh-huh. that's kind of a run-up for how the Strigoi are a little bit. It's very, very similar to how the Strigoi are in The Strain, so might not be a bad idea to check it out. I will. I will. I believe it's on Hulu, if I'm not mistaken. I think it is. At least the first two seasons are, and it's wrapping up this year. I think it's on its final season right now it's just a four season show and uh oh, really yeah i've enjoyed way more than i've been disappointed in so <laughs> let me put it that way well we're always looking for a new show to watch always well i hope you guys enjoy that if you so i will out. keep that in mind all right yeah thank you <laughs> all right so back to uh <laughs> back to our notes here for the sluice framework uh right when dracula does finally attack maria this time it's on the bed because she does get away from the basement he looks like he might have gotten a little nibble but she got away but then right he actually finds out through the pastor that's staying there he finds out that maria is not too far away and they can get there via the rooftops this is the thing that you were talking about where he's attacking maria on the bed and then she grabs a hold of the doll's arms and then pushes the doll off the bed and my question was going to be do you see any symbolism there and obviously you did you've already brought that up certainly yeah certainly and i think it's very interesting too he kind of nuzzles her with his nose around her face before he goes in and it seemed like that was a very uncharacteristically tender thing for him to do. Yes. Now, another thought that could be is that maybe Paul and Maria are not sexually active, and this is an allegory for, since Dracula is in need of a bride, perhaps he is showing some affection to this girl because this is her first experience with a man altogether, and so he shows her a little tenderness before he completely takes her over. It's more of a seductive Dracula. This is the least rapey victimization that we've seen of a Dracula from hammer yes yes <laughs> but i think the her throwing the doll off the bed i think that's just a huge dollop of symbolism there is that maybe she hasn't had sex and here it is she's becoming a woman in the parlance of the time yeah i was thinking also like it has that symbolism if you want to go to the biblical scripture of when i was a child i thought of childish things you know the, yeah and then when i became a man i put away childish things i can't remember it exactly verbatim off the top of my head but to me it seems that she is very much a child, even though she's a growing into a young woman until this experience with Dracula. And it is literally her pushing away her childish things when she becomes a woman. I mean, the symbolism is driven home there, but at the same time you have that layer of it, but there's also the symbolism of her losing her virginity to someone that is not good for her, but it's a lustful kind of thing. Almost. It's very gentle the way that she is treated by Dracula. And it's very Mm -hmm. uncharacteristic for him, much like the scene that Veronica Carlson gets with Frankenstein but we won't go into that where it's very uncharacteristic for Frankenstein and Peter Cushing. Oh, yes, very uncharacteristic. You get the feeling that he probably did not do that with Xena. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I think that their relationship is sort of an allegory for almost Xena becoming a drug addict because she's trying to hide her quote-unquote shame from the bite marks. Or you could even see where it's maybe a social disease where she picks something up and she's trying to hide the lesions or what have you. Mm -hmm. Um, But also the way that they interact, it has that symbolism that feels like the BDSM where, you know, he's leaving marks behind, but she likes the way it hurts. It hurts so good. (laughs) Yeah, no doubt. 
And even still, the way that he attacks Xena or when he's actually feeding from Xena, it's even still less of a, of an assault. It doesn't feel as sexual assault like you would see in Prince of Darkness where he just charges after them. And the look that they have in the eyes when they put in the Scalera bloodshot lenses feels a mm-hmm. lot less severe than you see in earlier Dracula or later Dracula incarnations that Christopher Lee did. He's almost calculating and cold and less of a beast just going after vengeance and blood. Yeah, they also explore in the next film, um, when he's resurrected, the people that have inadvertently helped resurrect him kill his servant, so he declares revenge upon the people that killed his servant. And he shows kind of an uncharacteristic loyalty to this person, not in the context of these Hammer films like we discussed before, but you know he might have fed upon this servant or killed him, you know, but since someone else killed him, he goes after them for revenge. It's, it's a very interesting concept. I think. Yeah, don't mess with Dracula's toys. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It's kind of like I could talk about my family, but I really don't want you to talk about my family. Yeah. I can call my uncle a drunk bastard, but you better not. <laughs> exactly. And I would never call your uncle a drunk bastard. <laughs> Well, I know. I'm just saying. Now, the following day after Maria is punctured, let's just put it bluntly, um, does the Monsignor actually see those bite marks on her neck? No, I don't think he does it at that point, does he? It sure seems like he does because he's looking right at the side of her neck where Dracula definitely bit her. And it seems like at that point when they find Maria in the morning that he does see it. I think he doesn't Mm -hmm. want to believe what it is that he's seeing, but it sure feels like he knows something's up and he's being suspicious. And I'm Mm -hmm. wondering if maybe he's thinking of what he just did and where he just was and is this possible? And I think it's almost like a denial, but I think he does see it. I think maybe you're right. Is this when he goes after Dracula across the rooftop? No, no. That's what happens the following night. That's why I'm thinking he sees it that morning and then he's kind of like, okay, don't leave her alone. Let's keep an eye on her and then that following night is when dracula comes back and that's okay. that's when that attack happens maybe at first he's like that damn atheist paul what has he done to her <laughs> clearly he's used a safety pin <laughs> <laughs> clearly <laughs> the devil's safety pin <laughs> and actually the clip whenever uh he accosts paul i named that clip the horrors of atheists <laughs> <laughs> that's funny yeah All right, so the following night, we see Dracula return, and this time it seems as though Maria is actually inviting and enjoying what Dracula has to offer. And we already kind of mentioned it. This is where I was asking if you think that they have sexualized Dracula's attacks, and obviously we do, and they definitely feel less like rape than they do in previous movies. It feels feels almost like he was trying to go for, or not he, specifically Christopher Lee, but in this film they were trying to go for more of the seductive Bella Lugosi style of Dracula where Mm -hmm. people just can't help themselves. They have to let him feed. Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. And I think they really bring this whole metaphor to fruition in this scene where the Monsignor comes right in, (laughs) pulls the cross right on Dracula and Dracula jumps through the window. And now how did you describe this? (laughs) I said Dracula jumped out that window like he was Paul Nashy. Yeah, he does. He he tucks the knees (laughs) in and puts the elbows up in front like stunt man style and just goes right through and it's 
Right. Very, right. very acrobatic. And it sure as hell looked like Christopher Lee did that stunt himself to me. Yeah, it was his stunt double. Um, best as I recall, uh, he was something was wrong with Christopher Lee. I don't remember if uh, it said that his stunt double did all the strenuous work. I don't know if he had broke his leg. I can't remember. I read something. And I apologize. I should remember. But uh, his stunt double looked a lot like him. But no, in that shot it, from a distance there, it does look a lot like Christopher Lee. They did a really good job. Yeah, it's edited well. I thought that mm-hmm. they just basically he turned around and jumped out the window like it totally tricked my eyes. Yeah, no, it, it, it's it's masterfully done. We really see the rooftop motif really comes to fruition here. It comes to a head with this scene where the Monsignor then, like an angry father, where he just found a teenage boy in the room with his daughter, he's chasing him across the rooftops because it's not enough to get him off of the girl and away from her. He needs no. to make sure that he will not come back and he's just chasing him like an angry dad is what it feels like. Mm-hmm, which is a terrible idea. Yeah, because he's going after a boy for stooping his daughter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and he comes around the corner, and who's there? The priest who knocks him in the head. And basically, With this a is where. Tile, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And as he's dying, he, he, he tells Paul that uh, he says, You have to go after him. Call upon God. And that's where Elizabeth said, If you're a Christian or, I guess, Jewish, you'd call upon God to go after Dracula. And I guess if you were Buddhist, you'd call upon Buddha. If you're an atheist, you'd call upon nothing. <laughs> and of course, she didn't mean it in a bad way, but it was, it, I thought it was funny. You know, I guess really, I'd say a man of your stature and obviously Paul and even David Warbeck and Twins of Evil would call upon science, would you not? I would try to use logic, reasoning, and science in some way, shape, or form to defeat him. Absolutely. Which you do yeah. see David Warbeck end up doing where he tries to use his rationality in Twins of Evil. But I don't, I don't think that I would wield science as if it were my religion. Religion, though. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't be like, Neil deGrasse Tyson, bring me strength. <laughs> if I were Professor Farnsworth from Futurama, I would call upon the great god Atheismo. There you go. I don't think Neil deGrasse Tyson would be any count against Dracula. Oh, I don't know. I think he could probably talk him down. <laughs> you think so? Yeah. I, I, there's something about that man. He just holds sway over everybody. <laughs> everybody she, wants to listen to him. Yeah, and she meant no offense. I thought it was funny. I wouldn't mind seeing Buddha fight Dracula. (laughs) Well, there's actually films where Jesus Christ does do some vampire hunting. I think they even named it such. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's true. You're right. (laughs) Actually, that is leading us to our final clip for the night. Listen to me. Let's fetch that boy. The one who is here. Paul? Paul. Bring him here to me. Why, Paul? Because he loves her. He will help her. I can't now, Ernst. No. Anna. Perhaps it is better you do not go until daylight. Count Dracula is alive. During the hours of darkness... She must never be left alone. You understand that? Not for one moment must you leave her side. Protect yourself as best you can. There are devices which may be of some effect. Charms, herbs. You will find it all here. You are a scholar of sorts, I understand. Well, 
They are all in Latin. Do the best you can. What little time. Oh. Oh. I'll get a doctor. No time. You must swear to do what I have told you. I promise. You should swear by Almighty God. But you have denied yourself this. You have my word. I know I have. Thank you. Anna, the boy must stay here. Yes, of course. Hurry, hurry, get your things. Come back quickly. There is much to do before dark. Now, this clip actually does open up a very large discussion of the difference between being a good person and being a person of faith. Now, Paul may have no faith, but Paul is legitimately a good man. We've already agreed on that. Mm -hmm. And he has all of the attributes that you would want a person to be whenever you would consider someone a good person. And the Monsignor sees this in him. And I think the Monsignor realizes here on his death couch, because he's not in bed, that because Paul has no faith doesn't mean that Paul is a bad person and that he was wrong in that side of it. And they make amends the way that he's saying here because he knows that what Paul does have is love for Maria. Bingo. He is trusting that Paul's love of for Maria and that his rationale, his knowledge and his scholarly pursuits, his logic and his reasoning will be enough to help him defeat Dracula because in this case, the Monsignor's faith was not enough. And even though the Monsignor's faith is essentially his own arrogance, I think he has now realized that what he needs is the combination of his faith, because he does say you have denied yourself this with God, but it's what we saw in Twins of Evil, where rationale, logic, reasoning, and you know the powers of deduction mixed with the courage that you can get from having faith in some way, shape, or form put together can create something that can overcome the evil of Dracula, where if the two can work together despite their differences, they are stronger in unity. And we've kind of hinted at it the way that uh, we've been kind of discussing it and framing it with those things going on in our society in general. And I think Mm -hmm. that this scene and, you know, all the joking that we've done earlier aside, you know, this scene actually shows the unification of people that may have different beliefs are going to be stronger than they would be trying to do their thing separately. And it's, it's a really poignant and wonderful thing to see them kind of realize that once again, Paul is a human being just like him. And, exactly. And his love is going to be enough to carry him through to do what he needs to do to take care of Dracula. And it's just an amazing scene. I agree totally. I think it also, where you have on the one hand, where the Monsignor's faith was not enough, when they go and find Dracula and he stakes him, then that's not enough because he doesn't pray while he stakes him. And that's how Dracula is able to survive. I think that there are two sides of the same coin in that respect, because and of course, this is something that Hammer invented. Right. I think for this film, because I don't recall seeing people pray while they staked vampires in earlier films. That is literally my next note, Brad. I actually have. Since when did killing Dracula require prayer? Van Mm -hmm. Helsing never prayed in any of the Hammer films that I can recall. It works. I'm willing to press the I believe button because in the context of this story, it absolutely makes sense. And I think it has nothing to do with God being on their side or the need for the belief in God. I think what it is, is it's not necessarily the prayer for a Christian God. I think it is a belief in what you are doing will 
vanquish evil. Like we talked about how the symbols of faith where a cross doesn't have power in some vampire beliefs unless you believe in it. If a Jewish mm-hmm. person were to wield a cross when they don't believe in Jesus, it wouldn't have power. But if they could wield a star of David with some of the stories I've seen w- with vampires, because they have faith in it, then they mm-hmm. can use that power of the belief that they have behind it. And this is something that even Neil Gaiman actually examines with uh, American gods. While gods have powers to affect mortal lives, they don't have any power unless mortals believe in them. And it's the same right. It's the same thing with the evil. Uh, you even see it with Freddy Krueger, <laughs> you know, when Nancy yeah. turns her back on him and says that she takes her power back from him, she will no longer believe that he can harm her. It's yeah. it's it's like time memorial storytelling. It's so wonderfully done and it's, <clears throat> it's simplistically wrapped around just staking a vampire. Well, there's an issue of the X-Men from either the late 70s or early 80s where they fight Dracula and Kitty Pride cannot use a cross to repel him because she is Jewish. Wolverine then attempts it but can't because and uh, this part's hazy but I believe it's because Wolverine doesn't believe but Nightcrawler however is a Christian and is able to use the cross. So I had seen this other places before. I think it's intense belief in something good in this respect. The fact that he's not able to pray. Paul doesn't realize the priest is bad at first uh, but since the priest is so weak in his faith he can't help him. So you've got where the Monsignor's faith couldn't carry him through then you've got where Paul staked him but since he didn't pray couldn't pull him through and then the priest is so weak in his faith he couldn't pull it through so Dracula is able to survive these things and ultimately Dracula is destroyed by the same thing that resurrected him which is pure chance. I kind of have the feeling that if Paul were to have staked him and if Paul were to have believed that it was enough and not been in fear and would have just Mm -hmm. continued the job I think it was Paul's lack of belief in himself and his capability of destroying this creature. Because when he stakes him, I don't think he goes deep enough. I think that's really the problem. I don't think that it's necessarily, even though they say about the prayer part of it, you know, I I think what it actually is, is he doesn't have enough belief in himself and therefore doesn't stake deep enough. (laughs) There's a parallel uh, in the Bible where Jesus walks on water and Peter goes to walk on the water too. And he does for a little bit, but he doesn't have enough faith. And Peter starts to fall into the water. I think that it is something that is kind of contrived in a way (laughs) for the film itself. Now, if I read correctly, I think later in in Fright Night, don't they have to have some sort of prayer or something as they kill the vampire? Is that right? I think Fright Night, if I remember correctly, it's been a really long time since I've watched it. It's been a while since I've seen it. But I think it's because um, there is no belief behind the cross. He has to have faith that the cross will work in order for Mm -hmm. it to work. You don't necessarily have to have faith in Jesus. You just have to have faith that the object you're wielding, yeah, that it will work and that you just have to believe that it will work. And I like that idea that these creatures exist in a realm beyond human understanding. So in order for you to be able to have some semblance of power, you have to be able to take away what power they have over you by destroying your rational belief or what have you, you know? Right. A creature like Dracula should not exist, and being able to kill something that's immortal otherwise just by staking it, if you don't believe that it's going to work, then it probably doesn't have power over a supernatural creature. I do like that idea. And I guess the way to be more resolute in the eyes of a Christian world that is going on in this film is that it is, in fact, the faith and the prayer will cement it. But in the end, too, I don't really remember anybody praying at the very, very end. Does the priest actually finally do a prayer to to kill Dracula at the end? Uh, No, I think it's, it's... 
it's he's impaled upon a giant cross, right? That I, and there's no one there to say a prayer. I mean, it's also explored in Salem's Lot when Barlow or I guess Straker actually asked Father Callahan to throw away his cross and let his faith take care of it, but his faith is weak, so it doesn't. But I really do think the reason that Dracula is resurrected is pure chance. The priest falls and lands on a rock and is bloody and cracks the ice. Uh, It's all very chance-based, and then at the very end, Dracula takes a tumble off the entrance of the castle and happens to land on this cross that was down there. So in the end, it's almost like the Monsignor, with help from Paul, they did it together. But it was also just kind of chancy. Well, what's really interesting about that, too, looking at it from the personal lack of faith that I have, that's the most atheistic thing this movie could actually do. Because even though Paul does cross himself at the end, and we'll kind of get into that as well, when Dracula falls on the cross and that's the thing that immediately kills him, it's a metallic cross, which totally doesn't follow any of the rules either. It's not even silver. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And and so because he's impaled by the cross, it defeats him. But it is, like you said, it's random, complete random chance. Just so happens. It's just sheer dumb luck. And when you don't have faith, that's kind of what you believe how things happen. It's synchronicity. It's just sheer dumb luck that some horrible thing happens or it's sheer dumb luck that some amazing thing happens. You know, and you don't even really believe in luck. It's just a term that you use to describe how things happen. You know, it's just random circumstances that kind of come together and eventually form a pattern that we end up seeing you know well and you know on the flip side you could also argue that the priest going up there to begin with and taking the cross with him was the ultimate demise of dracula if he hadn't carried it up there then they <laughs> then it wouldn't have been there for dracula to land on but i i do remember the actual the priest does say the lord's prayer and paul does cross himself i don't really know how to feel about that because in a way you could say well that kind of devalues his atheism I know the first time I watched this film, knowing what an atheist was and that I was one, it angers me. I feel like it ruins the film earlier, but I have a new take on it now. I look at it completely differently in my less angry and less militant atheist (laughs) You know, there's that saying, there's no atheist in a foxhole. Well, that's not true. There are atheists in foxholes. I don't think they hammer this point. Uh, Here's another pun, hammer the point. But uh, You nailed that one. You know, if... If you did not believe, thank you. Uh, see, you just you just punned. If you live in a world where you don't believe in vampires, and all of a sudden there are vampires, maybe you might say, "Well, maybe I should, at the very least, rethink whether or not I believe that there's a god or not." Because I didn't believe in vampires, and here they are. You know, I don't know. I can see where, as a militant atheist, you would be upset with how <laughs> they've turned they've turned it around. You know, they might not even have been thinking about these sorts of things. So that it might have been just playing to the audience. Well, could go back to the whole censorship thing where you can't have an atheist go the whole way through exactly an atheist and he has to be converted at the last minute but the way that i look at it right after seeing the monsignor pass away and have his faith in paul despite paul's lack of faith that he will save his niece and then also the priest who literally comes back from the brink of dracula's grasp to basically seal the deal with the little lord's prayer thing before he dies as well i think it was like a final act of the sacrifice I think those two men and their faith is a moment Paul has kind of moved after watching them both go, and mm-hmm. he does the sign of the cross, not necessarily as a symbol of he now has faith, but as a, a sign of like a respect or tribute to the two yes, men of yeah. faith who have just died 
in order to save Maria and defeat Dracula. I, I look yeah. at it more that way now than I, I did in my more angry young kid days. Sure. No, and I can see that too. <laughs> the thing I think that is important to remember that I've made it clear too, hopefully throughout this this episode is that Paul is a decent person. Paul's a good person. Paul is the hero of the film, you know? I like the way you put it is that perhaps he's just showing a sign of respect in a way that he did not before at dinner. Yeah, you know, I think Paul has grown as a person, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think so. Of course, in Taste of the Blood of Dracula, there is someone right off screen that as soon as he disintegrates and they turn their heads, goes and collects his, his dusty blood <laughs> in a vial, which is absolutely ridiculous. But again, it's them showing some semblance of continuity with the films. Uh, I think it's a good film. I think that uh, I, somehow I picked two in a row that have got atheists in them and I did not. <laughs> I did not set out to do that because not only atheists, but also people of very stringent religious faith and yeah. the way that they interact together. And then they have to somewhat team up in the end to defeat evil. It's yeah, I, it's so interesting. Think, it's like a great team up for both of us to talk about again. It is. It is. And I don't think, I don't think the Monsignor is anywhere near the level of arrogance that uh, Peter Cushing's character is in twins of you. I can't think of who he plays the, the name, Gustav? but I don't, is it Gustav? Gustav. Yeah, I think yeah. you're right. I think it's Gustav. Well, that guy was convinced that they were witches and that he has to burn them. And it wasn't just arrogance. I think there was a little bit of perversion and evil in him. <laughs> and he yeah. was just hashing it out using faith as an excuse to burn women that turned him on. Exactly. I think you're right about that. Is it possibly a sign of respect? I like the film quite a bit. Yeah, I do too. Uh, it's not my absolute favorite out of all of the Draculas. But well, we're it, gonna get we're gonna get there, Court. <laughs> it definitely has gone up a notch just from looking at it with a more critical eye, and that's why I love that we're doing this series because any of the Hammer films, I'm gonna look at it in a completely different way than I have before. Because normally, when I'm watching the older Universals and the the Hammer Dracula and Frankenstein and everything like that, I turn off any kind of critical sure. eye, and I try not to look too deep into it. And I'm just sitting back and I'm looking for the blood, the monsters, the fun, and to toss the popcorn back. You know, that's that's my mm -hmm. thing. And the boobs. The boobs. <laughs> well, well, that's a given for me because, you know, I already quoted that I want to see less for a vampire starring right. Xena and uh, mm -hmm. Veronica Carlson's Maria. <laughs> <laughs> so this could be an easy question time or it could be difficult, but I wanted to know, um, can you rank the Christopher Lee Hammer Dracula films. Oh, <laughs> I, in your personal personal pantheon, I can give you. Let's just say um, a top five. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> okay. For the purposes of this question, time I wouldn't count Brides of Dracula, which is a wonderful film, but no Christopher Lee, and I wouldn't count Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. Okay. Yeah, because you said Christopher Lee Dracula. Christopher Lee. Yes, right. sir. Okay. Uh, well, they're not going to be in any particular order. They'll just be my top five, and then okay. they're, they're going to vie for different orders. But the original Christopher Lee's Horror of Dracula, as we know it, or just Dracula as it was released over there, that's going to be number well, one of them. Okay. Um, going to have to do... I really love Scars of Dracula. That's the one where he gets the revenge for the killed servant, um, because I like the way that he was resurrected in that where there's these thrill seekers looking for the ultimate new thing that, because they got... That's, all those, that's Taste of Blood of Dracula. Sorry, Taste the Blood of Dracula then. See, I get the titles mixed up too. Thank you for oh, correcting it's, me. It's, no, I hate to be a dick about it. <laughs> no, I totally, it happens to me with these. They, they blur well, together. There's... 
But yeah. I love Taste the Blood of Dracula as well because I love these thrill-seeking, perverted, weird, just overly rich men that get way more than they bargain for. <laughs> yes. I love that storyline in that. So Taste is definitely on that list. Um, Going to have to put Dracula Has Risen from the Grave on that list, definitely. I don't know if it would have been there before this review, but it's made it to my top five now for sure. Nice. Um, let's see here. Is Scars of Dracula the one where he falls on the altar and then disintegrates? Yeah. Okay, so Scars of Dracula would be in there as well. I definitely love that one, even though that's not one that a lot of other people love. <laughs> no, they don't. I definitely no, they don't. like that one. And as much as other people hate it, and as cornball and cheesy and weird as it is, I fucking love Dracula 80, 1972, so that's gotta be on Heck, so. <laughs> heck yeah. <laughs> if nothing else for watching blood being spilled out of a goblet onto Carolyn Monroe's Gosh. body. <laughs> oh gosh uh stephanie beecham as well oh yeah god and plus if i'm completely honest that was my first hammer dracula movie that i found really <laughs> yeah yeah and i, I think it I it's severely underrated there was a there was a weekend of um my twelfth birthday and my my birthday's over the summer so I was off school and my parents both had to work and my party for my birthday wasn't going to happen until I they got home from work and everything so I'm home and I think it was like around the time that Stars and Encore had just started launching and Encore was a thing and we had mm-hmm. it and they did an all day marathon that started on that day I think it was even my birthday was on a Monday that year too and it was like an all day marathon that was kicking off a week and it was hammer marathons wow the very first one that they played was devil rides out and then the following movie was dracula ad 1972 and by the end of those two films i was both a christopher lee fanatic Uh a hammer fan and Uh totally in love with that craziness that was dracula ad 1972 oh so so good yeah so good like I said, they're not in any particular order, but I would have right. to, I would have to probably obviously Dracula 80 1972 barely made the list, but <laughs> it's there. <laughs> right. Mine would be my favorite is Dracula Prince of Darkness. Oh, that's uh, a good one. I shouldn't have skipped that one. Damn it. <laughs> uh, my mom bought me a graphic novel adaptation of it. Um, I don't have it anymore. I've not been able to find it, but that's my favorite. Then it would be Dracula, the first one. Then AD 1972 is my third favorite. Then the Satanic Rites of Dracula, which is my fourth favorite, which I think everyone sleeps on. I think it's a brilliant film. I think it's probably the scariest of the Dracula films, in my opinion. I saw it a lot when I was a kid, and there's two scenes in particular that very much scare me. It's also a sequel to AD 1972. It's a full-blown sequel. Then would probably be uh, maybe... Maybe Taste the Blood of Dracula. It's, this is where it gets dicey for two. <laughs> Probably Taste the Blood of Dracula, then this one, Dracula is Risen from the Grave, and then the last one would be Scars of Dracula, which I still really like. People hate that movie. They hate it. The sets look kind of tatty and cheap, but uh, it's got Patrick Troughton in it, who was uh, Doctor Who, was the second Doctor. Yep. So, of course, I always enjoy seeing him. Yeah. Uh, so even though I say Scars is my least favorite, that really doesn't mean anything in the scheme of things because I love all of the Christopher Lee Dracula films. But no, AD 1972 is a big time, big time favorite of mine. I want to say it was Tim Lucas. It may not have been. But one of the common things that people detract from AD 1972 is that he never leaves the church. You know, they've got London in 1972 and he never leaves the church. But if you recall in a movie that a lot of people love, Black Sunday, the evil vampire Barbara Steele never leaves the tomb in that film. Right. Why leave the place where you know you're safe? 
you're protected. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so plus the church in 80, 1972, that dilapidated church is incredible. It's such a beautiful mm-hmm. set. Yes. Yes. That's something I'm looking forward to this October is that Elizabeth and I, Elizabeth loves 80, 1972. It may be her second favorite. So that's what we're going to do is watch. 80, 1972, followed by Satanic Rites of Dracula in a double feature. And it's something that I'm really looking forward to. The Satanic Rites of Dracula is a very 70s film. It is very much like the Avengers or like a a British spy agent film with Dracula in it. It's got two parts in particular that scared me a lot when I was a kid. The theme song that plays as it opens is a a great song. I believe it's the song that uh, Derek uses for 1951 Down Place as their theme and i know that he's a fan as well i've talked i've actually talked to him about that a time or two in uh various emails <laughs> and whatnot but i uh, know i'm a big fan and elizabeth she's like i know you like that one a lot and i'm like i do it's a it's a direct sequel to 80 1972 and i like to look at them as one big film it takes place in the 70s as well i think peter cushing is really good in it but anyway, no, I, that's that's the order that I would put them in. I really actually do enjoy Satanic Rites of Dracula. It's one of those, I caught that later on. It, there was a local horror host after I moved out to Omaha here that kind of revived. There's a there's a guy that was known as Sanguinary here in Omaha. Mm-hmm. And he did Creature Features, was the name of the show. Right as I first moved here, there was a guy that was doing what he called Son of Sanguinary. It was supposed to be a tribute to Sanguinary on the same channel. They reused mm-hmm. some of the effects and everything. And one of the shows that he did i caught two movies where like two they did you would usually play like two shows back to back on some nights uh-huh. and it was a double feature where i saw the satanic rites of dracula hosted by the son of sanguinary and then immediately after that was horror express and i had never seen either film Ooh, wow and it was my early 20s and both of them blew my mind away <laughs> i was just yeah and it's it's a perfect double feature because it has that same kind of occult end of the world like you can't control what's about to happen feel to yes. it and one just yes. so happens to be on a train <laughs> absolutely no that's that's awesome yeah i wonder if and i've often wondered if uh, as you probably know Satanic Rites of Dracula in America is public domain. You probably own several crappy copies of it in packs. It was known here as Count Dracula and his Vampire Brides because the Satanic Rites of Dracula is too strong for fragile Americans to even <laughs> comprehend. It's one that I think probably a lot of the people listening, whether they've seen it or not, probably own a copy of a crappy one because it's in a lot of those horror packs. I think it's a great film. I really enjoy it. Like I said, it's got a real contemporary 70s feel to it, whereas like a lot of the other films have you know 60s feel to them but they take place you know in a, in a much earlier time was there any other questions for question time that's it no that was it i thought that'd be just a good one to kind of <laughs> well now i'm double questioning like my i need to see i wasn't really fully prepared because it's been so long since i watched some of these but well Dr- you kind of hit it earlier yeah dracula prince of darkness is definitely gonna be on the list and i think if I had to do a top five, that would push Scars out. But if you were going to allow me to put in six, then Scars would still be on the list at six. <laughs> oh, uh, there are no rules to question time. <laughs> Is Prince of Darkness the one where he doesn't talk, right? Like he just does not say yep. a thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but that has sort of, it's almost like a slasher film where it's like kids come to his yes. house and yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. yes. No, that's, that's got uh, Barbara Shelley. It's got Francis Matthews that if you close your eyes when he talks, you'd swear it was Cary Grant. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it, it it's got uh, what's his name? He was in uh, the Australian film The Castle. Um, 
Bud Tingwell, Bud Charles Tingwell, uh, who was actually in the 60s Miss Marple adaptations with Margaret Rutherford that are so good. Dracula, Prince of Darkness. Oh, it's good. It's real good. Can't believe I forgot that one. See, that's one that I didn't watch until within recent years, like when I actively mm-hmm. started collecting and grabbing every hammer thing that I could. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why it always kind of falls away from my mind. But that would definitely, that would have to be in my top five. And that would push yeah. out Scars for sure, because I love Scars, but Dracula Prince of Darkness is greater than. <laughs> yes, it is. You know, there are whole big stretches that are silent anyway, where they're creeping about the castle and the clove, the manservant is kind of luring them in. And they hoist Charles Budding. Well, I can't remember his name in the film, but they hoist him up, cut his throat and his blood gushes down into the tomb where Dracula is. And that's how they resurrect him. And there's all the mist and smoke. And then his hand comes up on the side, like if he were in a coffin it is a great film yeah yeah excellent i can't believe i forgot that i apologize to every hand out there i can't believe i forgot that one how long has it been since you've seen all of them and it was there's (laughs) a lot of them there's you know, it, it, uh, we didn't rehearse question time at all. I didn't tell you what it was going to be or that there even was one until we started. Well, that's that's what makes it the best, man. Absolutely. <laughs> all right. Yes. I've been keeping you up late, and I, I know it's, uh, it's going to be time for uh, us to close out the show here. So we're going to take a little break here. We'll play a promo for another podcast. We'll have a little bit of music, and when we come back, we will go ahead and close out the show. Are you sick of the same old stale podcast? Well, then join Vanessa and David as they dissect movies of all kinds. The two lifelong cinema lovers bring their favorites, curiosities, and first-time watches to the operating table and inject them with a healthy dose of snark. Then there's the waiting room, where they examine books and short stories. So just look for them on iTunes and where fine podcasts are available. They're part of the Legion Podcast Network. Follow them on Twitter at VDClinicPod or email them at VDClinicPod at gmail.com. They're ready to cure what ails you. And still, they just might be contagious. Get information All 
All right, so we've got a little bit of some good old-fashioned Nosferatu goth metal band, I guess you could say, with the Keeper's Call, just to do a little bit of more spooky atmosphere when we're talking all this Dracula and Hammer. I thought I thought it was fitting. Um, if you guys are listening to the show right now and you have still not checked out, hello, this is the Doom Show. First of all, shame on you, and secondly. <laughs> We are now on the same podcast network. So we are. And I are comrades. You need to check out. Hello, this is the Doom Show. I am dead serious. This is one of the better podcasts out there. And I'm not just saying that because Brad was gracious enough to come on my show. Well, thank you very much, sir. And if you guys are having trouble locating it, it's legionpodcast.com. And for us, it's forward slash cinema dash psyops. And hello, this is the Doom Show is right there on the main page. It's real easy to find, just like our show. You can find me on Facebook. I am Court Psyops. You can also find me on Twitter. I am at Court underscore Psyop. And Brad prefers that you leave him alone. He leads a very private life. (laughs) (laughs) So true. (laughs) That's funny. This is true. But if you are actually able to pierce that and become a friend, it's definitely amazing hanging out with Brad. Thank you so much for being on the show, dude. I really appreciate it. Sir, I appreciate it. The, The pleasure was all mine and let's not wait a year to do this again absolutely we need to do this which is way more often all my, all my fault <laughs> well and i also didn't want to push because you know like holding onto a bar of soap you don't want to squeeze too hard or it'll just shoot right <laughs> out of your hands brad last year was tough well let's hope that we can do this again within a couple yes, of months sir. yes sir let's do it all right well thank you folks for downloading and listening to this episode kick the fuck out of this week and make it your bitch How's it going, Brad? Very well, sir. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Glad to have you on the show, Brad. <laughs> Sorry, I had my I had my mic muted. <laughs> That's okay. That's what editing's for, buddy. That's what we do. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm sorry. I've already screwed up. I've already screwed the whole show up. <laughs> oh man, no, not at all. If anything, you've helped improve it. <laughs> I thought I thought he's not saying anything back to me. Oh look. There's a line across my microphone. (laughs) Sorry. I'm going to mute us again, so you don't have to worry about muting on your side. You won't come through on my recording. (laughs) Okay. You know, I forgot to intro the trailer like a jackass. (laughs) (laughs) 
And uh, I have no segue. I'm terrible at this right now, Brad. <laughs> uh huh. Exactly. And you know that even goes for regional dialect here in America. One thing uh, that I always think is funny, my friend Carl. I would ask him, "Is so and so any count?" And he would just laugh. He said, "What does that even mean, any count?" And I said, "Well, it's just something that we've always said. You know, it may be a bastardization of is it of account? What account is it of? You know." Right. And you know, my dad even texted me the other day. He asked me about some movie, and he said, "Is it any count?" And I just always laugh because you know that's. Just just not something that everyone says. Well, and it's one of those things, too, where if you just take a moment to think about it, as you said it right away, my brain went to hearing people refer to things as no count. So, exactly. So therefore, if it's of any count, then that means does it have any value? It just totally clicked with me. Exactly. <laughs> but some people, it wouldn't. You know, my grandmother will say, well, I'll swan. And the best that I could figure is that is she is saying a slang for swoon because she always says it when something disastrous happens. And uh, she'll say, well, I'll swan. And I'm like, that's got to be I'll swoon, I think. Well, that may be more of a personal thing because that's not one that I'm personally familiar with. Oh, but I've heard lots of people yeah, around here. It's just something that, you know, you have all these different cultures that come together, especially for right now, the issues that we're going through as a country. You know, a lot of us are forefathers came from somewhere else, you know, and we would do well to remember that. So where you said your wife is Irish, we're actually Scotch-Irish. Even though we were born here, not our entire family line all the way back typically. So you get a lot of these regional things that carry over down through the years. Yeah, it's less than three generations off the boat for my people. (laughs) There you go. For both sides of my family. So yeah, it's not that far back. And of a lot of people that are getting against this whole multicultural is kind of what we're talking about here where it's you know if you just step outside of your own comfort zone and just kind of think for a moment mm-hmm. about what it is I mean people are people we may all have different ways of expressing things and different ways of viewing the world but underneath we're all the same if you open us up we're all the same red book <laughs> yeah I mean I grew up I love pizza well pizza's from Italy you know, I mean, you know, uh, we all, I love tacos. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I hate to use this term, even, but you're never as purebred as you think you are. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, we're both more rural people. I mean, I grew up in the hills in Western PA, you know, yep. you're, you're a Tennessee boy. So we both have this love of these foreign cultural films and we both were exposed to them, I would assume, through either rentals or late night cable TV. I mean, that's how all, I got all my stuff. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and all it really took was just an open mind for 90 minutes at a time and look what it did for us <laughs> yeah i mean and like you and i've talked about before we're very different on the religious and probably the political spectrum but i would never try to hurt your feelings like some do you know what i'm saying and i don't think you would me either why can't we just get along you know i respect you the way you are and hopefully you respect me too and man we have gotten way off track haven't we <laughs> I will go back, and I, I, I probably went into this before, uh, and I just want to say again, when someone says, well, I listen to Metallica, and old lady so-and-so said I'd go to hell for listening to Metallica, so I don't believe in God because that's ridiculous. Well, you know, have old lady so-and-so show me in the Bible where it says if you listen to Metallica, you'll go to hell because it's not in there. I thought it was so, in uh, verse 5, chapter 3 of the book of Don't Listen to Metallica. No, it's not. I think you're <laughs> I think you're mistaking that with Alice Cooper. Oh, right. No, I think that might be Megadeth's book. That might be the bridge. Megadeth, that's, yeah. that's Dave Mustaine's abridged version. He's pretty angry. <laughs> 
our conversations, I told my wife, I'm like, I probably won't be done till nine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I, I know we once you and I get talking about movies, yeah. I, can, I can only imagine that in person it would be exponentially worse. <laughs> oh my gosh, when when I met Richard in person, we just talked and talked and talked and talked and talked. <laughs> yeah.